Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Well, hello. This is Michael Adams. Nothing but the truth. One man's journey to find it. And it is... May the 16th, 2015, and we're going to do part three of this, uh, the truth about the Mormon church. Now, I, uh, let's see, where am I at here? The first two I shared with you were from a gentleman, Dave, his first name, and New Caribou, (laughs) YouTube channel. Anyways, this guy... He's an interesting character. First of all, just to let you know, he's an atheist. And what I wanted to demonstrate with sharing the first couple episodes is the consequence of what a a person who grows up in a cult like the Mormon Church and comes out of it, uh, well, what the consequences usually are is that uh, they end up becoming an atheist, or worse. Uh, I truly believe that the Mormon Church is designed to corrupt the understanding of the Bible, the Word of God, and um, to exploit a whole lot of uh, well-intended but naive folks. Um, And it is a corporation. It's there to design to exploit people to the hilt Get them to give them their money away to the the, the corporation called the Church uh, uh, Christ Latter Day Saints. Latter Day Saints, right? Latter Day Saints, it's the letter the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. That's it. And all its subgroups, you know, it's like the branch off from it. So, anyways, this guy, you know, is it? He calls himself. He says he's, he's bipolar. Uh, this guy's been married multiple times, has 14 children. I think he's probably, probably each on the side is uh, got a lot of damage and hurt because of the Mormon church, his involvement. Uh, he shared a little bit about his experience with the uh, the temple. Um, you could certainly, he's done like over a thousand videos, most of them concerning his hatred and anger towards the Mormon church. And uh, I don't blame him. <laughs> but ironically, this particular gentleman actually does a pretty good job of exposing a lot of the hypocrisy and contradictions that are uh, the, what, what makes up the Mormon church, the Mormon religion. So this time around now, we're going to go listen to a couple of documentaries. Um, one will be about... Uh, uh, what it means to be in a cult. Let's see. Let's get here. What will be about the Bible versus the Book of Mormon? 
comment. The other one will be about the mark of a cult. Um, and we'll be talking about things like the, book, uh, the, the Mormon Church and about the SDA and other stuff. But um, I, I, you know, you might be asking, why did I choose to use start out with this strange fellow named <laughs> first name of Dave? Let's put it that way. Why no more? You certainly can look into it. You know, I, I feel for the man. I understand how destructive the the, the religion of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is. Uh, it's ruined many a life and made many other people's lives, like myself, lives very challenged. It um, takes a long time to break away from the, that group of all this deception, you know. Um, I strongly feel that the Jesuits created the Mormon Church um, for many reasons. It was exploited and used this to settle the West, to, to clear away uh, uh, the indigenous populations of the West. Um, I strongly believe that it served its purpose, and now you can start to see it be dismantled. And how do they dismantle it? Well, first and foremost is that they start exposing it to the hilt. And in some way, am I serving Rome's Jesuit plans? I guess I am. Not that I mean to. That's my intentions. But um, because for me, I want uh, not only <clears throat> to expose the Mormon Church, but also the Roman Catholic Church and the Jesuits and their involvement in it. So. Uh, and to forewarn people getting into this, these movements, these churches, these religions, that you beware. You know, they, you know, they have like this play out there called the Book of Mormon, and um, the guy's like ten. They it's clear to me he's a, he's a Luciferian. He's not. He likes to call himself an atheist and a humanist. But the truth of the matter is, you see him constantly flaunting all these satanic symbols and all that. Oh, he is thrilled to death about that play. And how he wants to destroy religion, but he doesn't tell you, like many of them, that they want you to follow their religion. Um, I think religion, organized religion is dangerous all around. But organized religion, these cultish movements at least, they're also the state... You see how they use religion, their religion, along with banksters, lawyers, uh, the government, to control and manipulate the masses, brainwash us, and to be good, uh, obedient, compliant followers of their program and agenda. And when they're done with you, they, well, get rid of you. <laughs> they sacrifice you one way or the other. So, um, yeah, so back to this reason why I use this Dave guy and, you know, I know he curses like a, like a, like a sailor or as he like to say, like a truck driver. Um, you know, can we accept and be able to 
read between the lines and say, oh yeah, the guy actually is speaking the truth. I don't like his, maybe I don't like his personality. I don't like what he, how he presents himself. But regardless of that, is he speaking the truth? And as far as the corruption of the church, the hypocrisy of the church, he has many videos, short videos, and he exploits all the, the pedophile, pedophilia that's going on, the sexual abuse that's going on in the church and the hierarchy. Um, in fact, this guy was married to a gal that, after her mission, you know, had a, uh, sounds like an illicit relationship with one of the, the uh, higher-ups of the Mormon church. Um, and, you know, the fact of the matter is, is the degree of hypocrisy that you find in these cults and these religions. And people say, well, it's like uh, the, the Mormon church always says, so it's not the church, it's the people that have a problem. The church is perfect, the people have a problem. Well, the people that will make up the church in reality and the reason why so many people end up being so screwed up and messed up when they're born to uh, things like uh, the Mormon church, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah Witnesses, the uh, Roman Catholic Church, um, even Southern Baptists, the non-denominationals, the postmodernist church, is because it's just full of contradictions and lies hypocrisy and it breeds more of it. Um, and the truth, if we look at the state of uh, religion today, it's dehumanizing. Maybe it always has been. In reality, it probably has always been. It's been a tool to exploit humanity. So, But the fact of the matter is, a lot of people who are uh, religious, and myself, um, if I don't have a problem exposing the others and the, the, uh, their hypocrisy when it comes to their faith, like Penn, you know, Penn and Taylor were talked about, and um, his Luciferian agenda, you don't, you don't have guts to tell you the truth about that. Although he keeps hinting it over and over again, that's what he is. And for most people, they say, well, he's just a guy who likes heavy metal and rock and roll. But the truth of the matter is, the guy's worse than you imagine. But my point in bringing him up is, is that there's a lot of people just really eager to see this church be destroyed, willing um, to replace it with even a more or equal sinister, exploitive cult. But we should just expose the more. The, the Mormon Church, what it's really about. Um, so this, so now with this episode, we'll be talking about, uh, or at least we'll be listening to, and the Bible versus the Book of Mormon. Uh, the Book of Mormon has zero, I mean zero, as far as uh, anything to support it, as far as archaeology, um, uh, history, anything to support it at all. Um, compared to the Bible. And then we will look again at the mark of a cult. So, I, for those people that might be offended, the first two parts that I used, a guy who was an atheist, 
And I also recognize maybe the potential hypocrisy that is coming out of me when I you know, have issues with, say, people who are featureless. But uh, the point I wanted to bring out there is, is this is what happens to a lot of folks. This is what happened to me for many years. Um, and you come out of that church, and you become very dysfunctional. You don't fit in. The society is large as a whole. Um, you've been betrayed. You're confused. You, you, you haven't properly been taught the Word of God. Um, who Jesus is. So inevitably, most people who come out of the church end up becoming uh, atheists. They don't want anything to do because they, they, associate, they don't want anything to do with God or the Word, the Bible, or anything because they associate that with organized religion, which is understandable. And unless you actually study the Bible for yourself and realize that the Bible is actually calling us. Lord has called us to come out of all these man-made religions and walk with him and have our own personal relationship with him and that has nothing to do with organized religion and their dogmas and doctrines. Um, but you will inevitably become an atheist. A humanist, a cynical, even worse. So, it is what it is. So, We'll start out with uh, the Bible versus the Book of Mormon, and then we'll go from there. Hopefully, we don't have any audio problems. So. <sighs> okay. You might be asking as well, does this guy ever sleep? Normally, I do, but I had a hard time sleeping last night. And so, I actually, that's the first couple episodes, I actually just tried to sleep while recording them. So. <laughs> Here we go. The Bible versus the Book of Mormon. Well, maybe we won't. Let's see. Might be one of those things. The computer has been acting up big time. And it seems to be having a hard time loading. Come on. Maybe we're going to have to go outside of... I wonder if it's, a lot of this has to do with this sea monkey. Sometimes sea monkey just seems to be a nightmare. Let's see if we can do it this way. Bible versus the book of Mormon. I have no idea why my computer's locking up on me. Not saying that there's a connection problem, but it's acting as if. Like the gentleman brought up too, you look at the Mormons, big time heavy into the FBI, CIA, NSA. I imagine they probably don't like the fact that I'm saying anything about it. Um, 
not to sound, I don't want to sound like a paranoid person, but you know what? It is, seems to be the case. Hmm. My, this episode might not come to fruition. Eh, not today, at least. Can't seem to load anything. Which is really weird. Well, that constantly happens. I checked to see if there's any viruses or anything like that. Cleaned it up with sea cleaner and can't get anything to do anything. I don't know why. It just keeps locking up on me. So you try it again. Yeah. So, yeah, the reason why I use this Dave guy and his, um, this is because I wanted to demonstrate what happens to a man who spends 50 years of his life in the Mormon church, is really active in it. What the church actually does to many people, it actually destroys their lives. Unless you become blindly obedient to it and conform completely to it and basically become a flat-out hypocrite and liar, although you feel that you're not because you say you believe what you believe in, and that somehow justifies behavior or uh, the denying, the denial of what's really going on. Um, I don't know. I don't know why I can't load anything. This is now, how many times do I have to go through this crud? My goodness. Back here. Can't load anything? Really? Hmm. We might have to scratch this if we can't get anything going here. Sometimes I feel like just throwing this thing against the wall. <laughs> I'm so sick of doing it, to be honest with you. So sick of even trying to get the message out when so few people even hear it. I do appreciate the people that do hear it, but you know, and I don't freak—I just don't have the desire to promote it, make a big deal about something that's really not that big of a deal. It's what everybody should be doing, I think. But most people would call themselves Christians, not pushing their religion, but but disposing the hypocrisy and lies and the truth and getting back to God's uh, teachings. But seems I can't do it. Looks like we're not going to be able to do this at all for some really bizarre reason. And it doesn't say that it's blocked. For some reason, it won't load. You get so tired of dealing with this. Arcade. All right. Really? Really? How many times did I just have to go through this stuff? What is going on? 
says is hmm. let's see something. Maybe there's some kind of connection thing. For some reason, like this can't seem to connect anything. Which it shouldn't be that difficult. I'm just playing YouTube. I'm not doing anything else with this computer. Nothing else. Yet even for some reason, Skype doesn't seem to work. Let's see, maybe that's that works no even Skype doesn't work what the heck okay we get that out of the way see if that might be interfering with it get out of here Skype had enough get out of here get out of here get out of here Really? I don't want that. Hmm. Sorry for wasting people's time here. It looks like it's another waste of time. <sighs> really? Why? Oh, there we go. For some reason, it's blocked. Limited access now. Interact. Make it happen, folks. Make it happen. Here we go. Let's see. We'll try this one again. Oh, now it's working. All right. I have no idea. So here we go. Let's see if this works now. Sorry for the delay. I guess I'm sick of it. You know, and I could do the whole interview thing. I, I do ask a few people here and there to, to want to do it. But, you know, I've listened to so many other people do interviews. Is anything really getting accomplished with the interviews? I don't know. Here we go. Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormons. Situated downtown on Main Street is a tiny storefront building where a small Christian church called Living Hope Christian Fellowship meets. Many of the Christians that meet at Living Hope are former Mormons. And so when we're talking about Mormons, 
Uh, we're talking in many cases about spouses and children and grandchildren. We're talking about coworkers and people that we've known all our lives. So, uh, of course, we love them. Of course, we're for them. The opening lines of the introduction to the Book of Mormon declare that the Book of Mormon is a volume of Holy Scripture comparable to the Bible. Is the Book of Mormon comparable to the Bible? A very important question, and one that the Christians at Living Hope felt like we really needed to address. Scott and I interviewed archaeologists and anthropologists, geographers, linguists, uh, on location and from a variety of different backgrounds. In our interviews, we asked the same questions about both the Bible and the Book of Mormon. In all, we conducted nearly 40 interviews throughout the United States and in six different countries around the world. And we were investigating one simple question. Is the Book of Mormon comparable to the Bible? And this is the story of what we found. Jerusalem, and after 70 years of exile, 
a remnant of the people from Judah, known as Jews, were allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and the city walls. The New Testament opens with the lands of Israel and Judah, now called Palestine, under Roman rule. Herod was king and had added to the temple. The New Testament records the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the coming of the Messiah in the person of Jesus Christ. According to the Book of Mormon, a group of people known as the Jaredites migrated to the New World in the distant past, following the events surrounding the Tower of Babel. Centuries later, the Jaredites destroyed themselves in a massive civil war. It is said that two million people died in a single battle on a hill, which the Book of Mormon later identifies as the Hill Cumorah. As the Jaredites died out, a Jewish family from Jerusalem migrated to the Americas around 600 B.C. The father of this family was named Lehi. From his righteous son Nephi grew a nation of white-skinned people called Nephites, while his rebellious sons Laman and Lemuel fathered the Lamanite nation, who were cursed with a dark skin for their rebelliousness. The two nations were in nearly constant conflict with one another. The culminating event of the Book of Mormon took place around A.D. 34, when Jesus Christ visited the Nephites and Lamanites living in the Americas following his death and resurrection. This event brought centuries of peace between the Nephites and the Lamanites. However, the peace did not last, and the Hill Cumorah once again became the setting for a massive slaughter. The Lamanites completely destroyed the Nephites down to one man named Moroni. Fourteen hundred years later, Moroni appeared as an angel to the young Joseph Smith Jr., telling him that there was a book written upon gold plates and that it was an account of the former inhabitants of this continent. After Smith received the plates on the Hill Cumorah, he claimed to translate the ancient record into English. The Book of Mormon was published in Palmyra, New York in the year 1830, and from that time on, Joseph Smith and every LDS prophet and apostle after him has proclaimed it to be a true and accurate history of ancient America. This painting is a familiar piece of artwork to most Mormons and represents the Mormon teaching that while the Bible is a historical account of the Old World, the Book of Mormon is a historical account of the Americas. We travel to upstate New York because uh, the, the Hill Cumorah is there, which is central to Mormonism. Uh, it's the traditional site where the great battles described in the Book of Mormon were fought. Uh, it, it's owned by the Mormon Church. They have a statue of Moroni and a visitor center, and they put on a pageant uh, during the summertime that retells the, uh, the Book of Mormon story. In fact, it's the only place that the LDS Church declares to be an official uh, ancient historical site. Because the narrow neck of land is described in the Book of Mormon account, it's generally assumed that the setting for the Book of Mormon is Mesoamerica. In fact, earlier versions of the Book of Mormon contained pictures of Mayan ruins, implying that there was a connection between these ruins and the Book of Mormon civilizations. And in the same way, artwork that's commonly used to depict these Book of Mormon scenes frequently portrays Mayan architecture and Mayan themes. So we traveled to Guatemala and to Honduras and southern Mexico with LDS anthropologist Dr. Tom Murphy to address the question of whether or not the Book of Mormon account matches the geography and the archaeology of the New World. 
in Israel, we started with the most obvious thing. So, so one of our first questions was, does the geography match the biblical account? same names used in the Bible 3,500 years ago till today, like the Dead Sea, like the Moabian Mountains, the Ammonite Mountains, and uh, we preserve them till today. These places were what the Bible says that they were. The geography matches. The valleys are next to the cities, which are connected to the hills, and all of this can be traced in very detailed geographic accounts in Scripture. So you find maps in the Bible, why don't you find maps in the Book of Mormon? There's no map showing the Book of Mormon lands because they can't place it on earth. They don't know where it is. What about all these illustrated maps you see for the Book of Mormon lands? I mean, why don't they agree with one another? And I guess more important than that, why don't they correspond to any real landmass on earth? You can't have a geography because there is no real world setting for the events described in the Book of Mormon. We can't agree upon it because anytime we attempt to try to put it in a real world setting, we have to distort either that real world setting or the text itself. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints takes no official position on the geography of the Book of Mormon. One of the reasons for this is obvious, is that the events never took place anywhere. The Jews still exist today, both in the countries to which they were exiled and in the land of Israel. All of the civilizations surrounding Palestine have also been well established through archaeology and history. Israel is a bridge of three continents. So we had the Egyptian coming here, the Assyrian coming here, the Babylonian coming here, the Hellenist Empire, the Roman. It's very evident when you read the Bible that uh, they're really talking about historical places. How do you know that the Roman Empire existed? The Romans left marks everywhere they went. They left large roads, they left coins, uh, and they left written records. The remains of the ancient Greek and Roman empires, which are written about in the Bible, are clearly visible throughout the Old World. Likewise, the Book of Mormon also records the existence of empires in the New World. We get the Jaredite civilization in the Book of Ether a promise that they will become the greatest nation in the world. Uh, this greatest nation on earth, we find no traces of it. The dates found in the footnotes of the Book of Mormon indicate that the Jaredite Empire was replaced by the Nephite Empire shortly after 600 B.C. In the Book of Mormon, you've got this large civilization of Nephites who were industrious people who built machines, lived in large cities. I, I don't know of any evidence that the Nephites ever existed in the Americas. 
the civilizations we find uh, throughout Central America tended to peak, find their great climax, uh, between 600 and, and 900 A.D., well after the events described in the Book of Mormon. The Lamanites are said to have annihilated the Nephite Empire around 400 A.D. So of the three people groups mentioned in the Book of Mormon, the Lamanites are the only ones that survived, becoming, according to the Book of Mormon, the principal ancestors of Native Americans. Now here at the Hill Cumorah, we have this plaque that specifically lists us as Lamanites. It's written to Lamanites, who are a remnant of the House of Israel. That's listing us as being specifically written to in the Book of Mormon. No se ha encontrado ninguna evidencia de una cultura procedente del territorio de Israel llamada Lamanitas o Nifitas. No hay ninguna evidencia. The Bible also contains accounts of people groups that no longer exist today, such as the Canaanites and the Philistines. But are these people groups missing from the archaeological record? Uh, we know a lot about the Canaanite civilization through Egyptian sources as well as through uh, many, many archaeological sites excavated in this country where we have the uh, Canaanite civilization uh, uh, reflected. Archaeologically, have the Philistines been shown to have existed? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, the Philistines have their own distinct material culture, which we can tell apart from other cultures that lived here. This begs the question, could the three enormous empires that are said to have flourished in the Americas for centuries leave no archaeological trace of themselves? So would it be possible, say, in the Americas, um, for an empire to exist there and leave no archaeology? No, it's impossible. No, it's impossible. We say that archaeology never lies. If there were people at a certain place, they left behind them many artifacts. We do not have such a uh, situation in which uh, a... Uh, a certain power would be destroyed without leaving any evidence. They leave their tombs, they leave the remnants of their houses, they leave their temples, they leave the foundations, and they leave the destruction. in Israel today, places like Hatzor, in Megiddo, in Jerusalem, in Shiloh, and Arad, and Beersheba, and Jericho, many of these are still inhabited until today, and they may be ruins. Jesus condemned these sites of Capernaum, and Bethsaida, and Chorazin, but there's no doubt, scholars know that these were real places that existed in his time, and the evidence for them is is certain. All these places that are still called by the same name, how is that possible? Because for thousands of years there's been a continuous settlement. Uh, local peoples have passed on the names from generation to generation. Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Elat, those are biblical names. We keep them for more than 3,000 years.
fortified cities written about in the Book of Mormon have names such as Nephi, Manti, Zarahemla, Sidon, Jershon, and Bountiful, to name just a few of the more than 30 major cities mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Because of the development of the uh, epigraphy, uh, we now are able to read you know, the ancient names of most of the, of the sites. You ever heard of names in, um, like Zarahemla? No. Or Nephi? A good friend once asked me, what sort of evidence would it take to convince you that the Book of Mormon was an ancient document? And my response to him was, it'd be nice if we could even find cities that are similar to the ones described in the Book of Mormon. There, there is no evidence uh, as far as uh, where Zarahemla is, which is one of the big cities that's mentioned in the, in the Book of Mormon. Here we are standing in Palenque today, the buildings that we see in front of us were in fact constructed several centuries after the events described in the Book of Mormon. So this could not possibly have been a Nephite city. If a city existed like this, a, a big city, is it possible that there would be no archaeological evidence left at all? No. It's impossible. In a, in a city like Tiberias, there is plenty of evidence, like architecture, floors, small finds, objects, coins, you name it, everything. Could a major city be conquered and not leave any, any of that evidence? No way. By no means. Years ago, I was engaged in a conversation with a Christian friend. One of the things he told me is that if I wanted to go to Jerusalem, it was easy to do, still today. I could visit Bethlehem, and I, I could... Uh, see the places where the events described in the New Testament took place. But have I ever been or heard of anyone going to Zarahemla or to Bountiful or to the city of Nephi? I wasn't even sure those places ever existed. And what I found in my anthropology classes is that my Christian friend was right and the Book of Mormon was wrong. <laughs> world as reflected in the scriptures is matched by the plants and the trees and the, we know these figs, almonds, palm trees, wheat, barley. When I read the New Testament, I see the relationship between Jesus and his world as one that re represents accurately the types of animals that we find in the ancient Near East. The animals that are mentioned in the Bible still do exist today. Uh, it's true that some are no longer uh, existing here, such as lions, uh, but we have explorers uh, centuries ago that uh, speak of these. There's no doubt, even if they don't exist today, that they did exist in antiquity. describes how Lehi's sons explore the land after their arrival in the Americas. First Nephi 18 says, There were beasts in the forest of every kind, both the cow and the ox and the ass and the horse and the goat. Second Nephi 12.7 says, The land is also full of horses. And the Book of Mormon suggests the use of horse-drawn chariots during massive battles involving tens of thousands of warriors. 
The Book of Mormon also records other aspects of the culture, including its agriculture. In Mosiah chapter 9 it says, They began to till the ground with seeds of wheat and barley. We would expect to find uh, remnants of the types of plants and animals that they raised. Instead, what we find are turkeys and llamas and dogs. We find corn and beans and squash. What we see in the Book of Mormon are all the wrong plants, things like wheat and barley in ancient America. We don't see wheat here. We don't see uh, cattle, sheep, goats. No horses during Book of Mormon times. No elephants during Book of Mormon times. Um, completely absent. But the Mayas didn't have these uh, before They didn't have horses, for example. The first time we saw a horse, as far as we know, was when a white man rode a horse from Albany up here in 1677. So the stories of riding horses into battle could not have occurred in the Americas. Both the Nephites and Jaredites are said to have processed ores and worked with many kinds of metal. First Nephi, 1825, says that Lehi's family did find all manner of ore, both gold and silver, and of copper. Uh, we don't find the use of metals like uh, gold, copper, in metallurgic terms, like you see described in the Book of Mormon, uh, references to bellows and, and other tools of metallurgy. The Book of Mormon specifically stated that there was steel in the New World. It's very easy to find the places where the steel is smelted. Even if you don't find the steel objects, not a single site has been found that can be said, yes, steel was smelted here. And what is really surprising about the Mayas is the fact that they didn't use metal. It is the lack of specific types of metal in the Americas that poses a serious problem for the Book of Mormon account, which claims that both the Jaredites and Nephites use metal armor and weapons in their warfare, metal coins for their currency, and are even described as using metal plates to write on. The heading under chapter 19 in 1 Nephi states, that Nephi makes plates of ore and records the history of his people. Helaman 3.15 describes the Nephite writings, saying, There are many books and many records of every kind, and they have been kept chiefly by the Nephites. One of the things that is said about the Nephites is that they were a culture with writing. Now, a culture with writing these records. And if uh, that number of people did not leave a record, well, I don't think they existed. And other records and, and accountings say that there were just, you know, hundreds or thousands of plates and records of the people. The idea that there could have been an empire that lasted for a thousand years, that claimed to be literate, and for there not to be no historical trace at all is extremely far-fetched. Any indication that the ancient Americans um, between 600 B.C. and 400 A.D. were wrote on metal plates? No. Ancient writings have been found from all of the empires that surrounded the kingdom of Israel, but none so abundant as the biblical manuscripts that have been found coming from the Israelites themselves. The earliest known part of the Bible to have been preserved in archaeology uh, is uh, a 
passage from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26 that was discovered by Gabriel Barkai. In an excavation which I directed here in Jerusalem, we found two uh, small, tiny silver plaques. They carry in the ancient Hebrew script uh, the oldest biblical verses that uh, we own. They come from this very period, the 7th century B.C. Well, here we climbed up the mountain in Qumran, and this is uh, cave number one. This is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. Every single book of the Old Testament, apart from possibly the book of Esther, is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so now we have copies of the Old Testament books from the Dead Sea Scrolls from 200 to 100 BC. For the Greek New Testament, we have around 5,500 manuscripts that's containing parts or all of the Greek New Testaments. So we've got plenty of evidence for the Greek Gospels, for the Greek letters in the New Testament that go way, way back to very early on, to only a matter of a few decades after they were first written. By contrast, we have no ancient copy of the Book of Mormon. We have manuscript evidence that's almost 2,000 years old for the New Testament and over 2,000 years old for the Old Testament. For the Book of Mormon, I'm not aware of any manuscript evidence at all. But with the Book of Mormon, we have no documentary trail. We do not have texts that we can go to until 1830. Uh, between the events in the Book of Mormon, which supposedly ended in 400 AD, and the first documentary trace is 1,400 years before we find any sort of documentary trace. What this suggests to me is that the book itself was constructed in the 19th century. Where, where are the documents? Where is the history that we find ample, abundant, when we're dealing with the Bible? Why don't we find it with the Book of Mormon, too? If you had the textual support of ancient documents for the Book of Mormon, let's say the Bible has, would you have lost faith in the Book of Mormon? Uh, it would certainly help the situation if the Book of Mormon had uh, a documentary trail and artifacts that would support uh, its claims. Uh, it would certainly, we might be able to refer to it then as a historical document. The Book of Mormon states in Mormon 9:32 that the language used in ancient America by the Nephites was called Reformed Egyptian. And that's what it says in the Book of Mormon, that they wrote in Reformed Egyptian. Would a Hebrew around about 600 B.C. know how to write in the ancient Reformed Egyptian? What ancient Reformed Egyptian? The linguists and, and others will state that they never heard of Reformed Egyptian, and, and less than Mormon. And the reason why the mainstream linguists don't have anything to say about it is because it's a fictional language. It does not exist. Any indication that the ancient inhabitants of the New World wrote in Hebrew or Egyptian? Categorically, no. No 
hay ninguna evidencia, no hay ningún rasgo hebreo, no existe en la icono, en el en el dato iconográfico del glifo, no existe ni por la mínima ni la remota idea de un eh, de una escritura hebrea the claim that the Book of Mormon is Hebrew scripture from this community that migrated, written on metal plates and saying lots of different things is just impossible at the end of the day. Why don't we just put the gold plates out there for everybody to look at and observe and read for themselves? Uh, we could put them in a, a, a monument over here. We could have the visitor center where you put the gold plates there. Anybody who had any doubts could come and read the Egyptian hieroglyphics there for themselves. Uh, and it, if If the Book of Mormon were true, that's exactly what we'd be able to do. Uh, we can take and find old uh, texts from the ancient Near East, take the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in fact, you can go to museums and see the Dead Sea Scrolls laid out for everyone to see. Uh, if the Book of Mormon was really what it claimed to be, we could do the same. and the Book of Mormon describe a coinage system. The Bible, for example, mentions many Roman coins being used in the days of Jesus in the first century A.D. Uh, the pavement upon which we stand at this moment, upon it there was a layer of about uh, uh, two to three inches of soil, which included many coins dating back to the first century. How many coins would you say have been found at this site during all of its excavation? Maybe 300, 400. So what are you putting in the bucket there? Coins. Coins? Oh, more than 10 coins. Oh, really? Um, one day. One day, 10 coins. So those are just the ones that you found yesterday? Yeah. Chapter 11 of the Book of Alma in the Book of Mormon. The chapter heading says, Nephite coinage set forth. Then it goes through and describes how the, the money system of the Book of Mormon worked. Now, if we take these images of coins we find in the Book of Mormon and contrast them to the systems of exchange in place in ancient America, we find that they're not at all alike. There were no metallic coins being used. The Book of Mormon just flat has it wrong. In all your excavating, you haven't found any coins um, that would predate the coming of the Europeans. Nothing. In fact, metallic coins were not in use in any part of ancient America. We didn't use coins. We didn't have them. We took coins when they first came, which were not until Europeans came around, and we usually kind of flattened them out and made them into jewelry. Yeah, <laughs> so the question that arises is where are all the Nephite coins that were in use for almost a thousand years? I don't think that there might be a situation when all the coins of a certain civilization or a certain uh, authority would disappear without uh, leaving a mark. The Bible gives an account of numerous battles and wars throughout the history of the Israelites. Like, do they find things like spearheads and, and things like that? When this country, for example, passed the uh, Assyrian conquest, we have the uh, arrowheads uh, which landed upon the roofs of the buildings uh, before they got destroyed. So we have uh, first the layer of the arrowheads and then we have the layer of the floors. Before the biblical period, we have evidence of the 
arrowheads that were used by the Babylonians, and we have arrowheads that were used by the locals, and we have arrowheads that were used by the Assyrians. The footnotes in the Book of Mormon suggest that the Lamanite extermination of the Nephites took place around 400 A.D., yet it left no archaeological evidence. By contrast, a much smaller battle that happened centuries earlier in the first century A.D. in Palestine demonstrates what one can expect to find if a battle like the one described in the Book of Mormon had really occurred. Uh, we have Flavius uh, Josephus telling us about a rock, an isolated rock in the desert uh, named Masada. He mentions about 900 uh, uh, people being up there besieged by the Romans and committing suicide. The place was identified, it was excavated in 1960s, and we have the skeletal remains, we have the houses, we have the coins, so we have a very clear evidence for the uh, uh, very tragic events which took place at Masada through archaeology. No civilization can be wiped out in such a way that uh, no remnant of it uh, is left. The Book of Ether and the Book of Mormon, especially chapter 15, describes a, a massive war in which it reports there had been slain two millions of mighty men, also their wives and children. Where are these steel swords that led to the massacres of millions? Where are the, the bodies, the remains, the skeletons of these millions of people? Where Where's the evidence of this ancient catastrophe we don't find it we don't find it in Central America we don't find it near Hillcomore in New York it simply didn't happen centuries later the Lamanite nation is said to have destroyed the Nephite nation in another massive battle at the same hill Cumorah. Well, growing up Mormon I was always taught that uh, the hill Cumorah was the location of the culminating events of the Book of Mormon. Mormon chapter 8, uh, verse 2. And now it came to pass that after the great and tremendous battle at Cumorah, behold, the Nephites who had escaped into the country southward were hunted by the Lamanites until they were all destroyed. Uh, it goes on to make an accounting of how many people approximately were, were killed, and it mentions them in tens of thousands each time. And you add it all up, it's at least 230,000 people. We thought it was a bad thing when we would lose 12 people. You know, then it was like, because you had 12 families in deep mourning. I grew up in western New York, and the uh, study that I chose was anthropology and archaeology because of my interest in trying to help prove uh, that the Book of, Book of Mormon was correct. And we were told at that time that, that science would prove the church was true. I did do archaeological work in the Panamara area. If there were big battles in the in the masses that they talked about, uh, we would have expected to find things that would be indicative to those big battles: uh, mass burial sites, human remains, a bone, and bone lasts very well. There have been no steel swords found, no chariot parts. When we talk about warfare weapons. We are basically talking about uh, stone tools. Habían armas cortopunzantes, pero de obsidiana y de pedernal, pero nada armas de metales de ninguna naturaleza. 
whenever they find in Israel a biblical site, they always excavate it. So why doesn't the LDS Church uh, excavate the Hill Cumorah? It would be a grand embarrassment to do that and not find a single thing. And do you think that's what they would find? Uh, I'm, I'm confident that they would find nothing. Have you ever done any archaeological excavations on the Hill Cumorah? Yeah. What, have they found anything? No. The LDS Church, of course, owning much of this property, could do the investigations. But they know from the little bit they have done, and they know from what's been done by others, the evidence isn't there. So it's obvious why they don't excavate. Uh, because if they did, all it would do is disprove uh, their faith claims. We are here next to the uh, western wall of the Temple Mount, or the Wailing Wall, as it is sometimes called. The wall itself is approximately 2,020 years old. This wall was built by Herod the Great, and it was destroyed by Titus in 70 uh, of the Common Era, uh, when the Second Temple went on fire and got uh, destroyed. This was one of the uh, greatest tragedies of Jerusalem, which is, I think, embodied in this pile of stones that you can see here. This is no doubt a very good representation of the words of the Gospel, uh, about Jesus saying that uh, you see these uh, magnificent stones of the Temple Mount, there will be none of them one on top of the other. This pile is a, uh, uh, an illustration which cannot be better uh, for the words of Jesus. In Second Nephi 5.16, the Book of Mormon says that Nephi and his family built a temple just like Solomon's temple after they arrived in the Americas. It says, and I, Nephi, another son of... Um, Lehi did build a temple, and I did construct it after the manner of the temple of Solomon. So let's say that that's true, um, that in ancient times they built this temple in America. in America. Any person who studies the Bible understands the centrality of worship here in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. The very idea of uh, a temple anywhere uh, other than uh, Mount Moriah is a total impossibility. Jews are literally not allowed to erect a temple anywhere in the world except for right here. The Book of Mormon clearly identifies Lehi as a descendant of Joseph. Later, in 2 Nephi 5, Lehi appoints his two sons as priests to serve in the temple they had built. The men who are serving in the Holy Temple are all descendants of Aaron, lineal descendants of Aaron. The Book of Mormon claim poses a problem because appointing priests who were not Aaronic Levites was expressly forbidden in the Old Testament. And yet, the Book of Mormon claims to uphold the Old Testament laws. What evidence is there of the existence of the people described in the Bible? We have an inscription mentioning the House of David. Actually, two different inscriptions. One found in southern Transjordan. The second one uh, comes from uh, Tel Dan in the north. And when we look at the Old Testament canon, when we look at people like Daniel and Isaiah, um, especially the later prophets of Malachi and, and Ezra, we have lots of extra-biblical witnesses 
to talk about these people outside of strictly the biblical context. These are ancient historical figures. The New Testament talks about various figures like high priests, and we see records of these high priests uh, which are from that period, showing that they clearly existed. Caiaphas is mentioned in the New Testament as the high priest in the time of Jesus. Several years ago, workmen came upon a burial cave. Inside the burial cave, there were approximately 10 ossuaries or bone boxes, upon one of which appeared the words, Joseph, the son of Caiaphas. The figures like Paul have to have existed, if not, who wrote the letters that bear his name um, that are written in the Greek of the time? The introduction page in the Book of Mormon claims that, like the Bible, the book was written by many ancient prophets. So before we can ask if these prophets were true prophets, we have to ask, ask did they ever exist? We have no evidence that they ever existed, let alone that they wrote down these prophecies that these prophecies were maintained accurately. We can't even ask these questions. We can't go that far. So what if the central figure of the Bible, Jesus Christ, what evidence is there that he existed? There's no doubt that Jesus was a historical figure. He's not only mentioned in Christian texts, but he's also mentioned in non-Christian texts. Uh, the Jews talk about Jesus Christ in their writings, even though they don't talk about him favorably. When you look at the testimony in Josephus, we see first Jesus was Messiah, Jesus lived as a teacher, Jesus died under Pilate, and Jesus was resurrected. Both Tacitus and Suetonius were Romans and did not see the Christian faith as something they wanted to promote in any way, shape, or form, and yet they're mentioning Christ. These are real people talking about the historical reality of Jesus. The historicity of Jesus Christ is established by ancient documents, and uh, these are documents that can be proven to be ancient. Do you, do you believe that the person of Jesus was a historical person? Absolutely, yeah. We do have plenty, a lot of records. We, we know that he existed. I mean, I don't think that there is any doubt about that. Jesus was here. On this, this very same level, on these very same stones, he was walking when he went into the Temple Mount. Jesus was a historical person in the ancient, in the ancient Near East. But to proclaim that Jesus uh, was a historical personage here in the ancient America is a rather absurd uh, proposal uh, that's certainly not backed by the evidence. Is it accurate to say that, that Jesus visited the Americas? There is no evidence for that at all. The Book of Mormon proposes that uh, after Jesus arrived in the Americas in A.D. 34, that there was a massive conversion uh, to Christianity. Aquí no existe ninguna evidencia cristiana, ni primitiva, ni más evolucionada. I find no evidence that tells me that Jesus Christ of the Bible is a Jesus Christ of the Book of Mormon. I cannot understand how archaeological evidence, contextual evidence, would point to the historical reality of Christ in Palestine and yet be entirely lost in the New World. The Jesus Christ we see presented in the Book of Mormon 
is the Jesus Christ of Joseph Smith's imagination. The Bible is a very important source. It tells us about historical events. You can easily show that the Bible is archaeologically sound. If you ask the Smithsonian about uh, the use of the Bible or the Book of Mormon for archaeological research, you'll get a response that is representative of what the anthropologists would agree with today, and that is that several books from the Bible have been used as guides uh, in archaeological research. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the Book of Mormon has never been used by the Smithsonian uh, as a guide to historical and archaeological research. The problems of the Book of Mormon are so systemic that I don't believe that no matter how much archaeological work is done here, that it will change the basic conclusion that the Book of Mormon couldn't possibly be a history of ancient America. It doesn't make sense to me. The Book of Mormon, uh, with all due honor, I don't think it has anything to do with the culture of 600 uh, B.C., and I'm an expert on that period. I, I can only answer you unabashedly that the Book of Mormon has absolutely no authority, bearing, or integrity whatsoever. Uh, Joseph Smith fabricated a history and presented it to the world as the Word of God. And that's pretty arrogant. It's really arrogant. As an anthropologist, if I step back and, and look at the whole big picture, when you can't find the places that it's talking about and you can't identify the people that it's talking about and you can't find the types of material goods that it's talking about, there's a major problem. If it was just one thing, then you could say, well, we're just not finding it. But if you don't find the whole package, then the chance of the Book of Mormon being true is zero. The Book of Mormon is factually wrong. It gets the wrong plants, it gets the wrong animals, it gets the wrong technology, it's got the wrong languages, and it's got the wrong culture. The Book of Mormon is 19th century religious fiction. So Joseph Smith said, I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion, and a man would get nearer to God by abiding in its precepts than by any other book. The Book of Mormon is full of mistakes. There are factual mistakes. Okay, uh, suggesting that Jesus, for example, was born in uh, Jerusalem rather than Bethlehem. And behold, he shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem. Of course, to me, who lived in Bethlehem all my life, this is strange. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem. If the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on earth, then we've got an awful lot of books full of lies.
This is the true story of a people who were prepared by the Lord to be ready for the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ. He came to them in the Americas. So if there, was no, there were no people, there was no evidence, then clearly there was no Jesus Christ visit to the Americas. Uh, the Book of Mormon then couldn't possibly be another testament of Jesus Christ. It's the claim that the Book of Mormon is a book of history of people of the American continent. If that is not true, then the Book of Mormon can't be true and it cannot be considered uh, Christian scripture. I have much more faith in, in the New Testament and the Old Testament as scripture. Stuart Ferguson played a key role in the creation of the New World Archaeological Foundation and the Anthropology Department at Brigham Young University. Millions of dollars have been spent looking for evidence of the Book of Mormon. Ferguson was one of the prime leaders and shakers in the research area in, in Central America, and he couldn't find anything. In Ferguson's efforts, he was hopeful that something that didn't happen. He was hoping to have documentary, uh, physical corroborations of the claims of the Book of Mormon. But what he found instead were contradictions. Unlike his colleagues at Brigham Young University, Thomas Stuart Ferguson had the courage to tell the truth about the Book of Mormon. And so what the apologists do is they, they work at trying to help people to keep them from losing their faith. And they'll use whatever means are possible. The Book of Mormon makes sense as plausible history. The whole thing seems right. It makes sense. There's very little in it, uh, apart from the explicitly religious events, the miracles and the visitations and so on, that a secular historian would find it all troublesome. Well, Dan Peterson is lying. The problem, first and foremost, with the Book of Mormon is its secular history. It gets the history wrong. A myth has been disproved again and again by archaeologists and historians on secular grounds, not religious ones. The only thing that the apologists want to do is prove it. Prove that the Book of Mormon is true. So they come up with really outrageous ideas that any bona fide anthropologist or archaeologist would simply shake their head at. For example, horses. They say, well, maybe, maybe they weren't horses. Maybe they were tapir or deer. Well, how do you ride something that's a little bit bigger than a dog into battle? It's an outrageous idea. So they're, they're using these, these very spurious arguments to say, here's how we prove that the Book of Mormon is true. And it, time doesn't permit to, to go through every single one of their arguments, but if you really look at those arguments carefully, if this argument was brought up in a scientific community, I can tell you they'd be laughed out of the building. The Mormon concept of determining truth of Scripture comes from Moroni chapter 10, which says, I would exhort you that when you shall read these things, that you would ask God if these things are not true, and that if you shall ask with a sincere heart, 
he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. Truth, then, is to be found by examining one's own heart. The picture throughout the Old Testament and New Testament is simply of hearts of men which are corrupt. Truth, according to Mormon teaching, is obtained by gaining an emotional assurance that the book is true. This sense of assurance is said to be evidence of the Holy Ghost and is often referred to as a burning in the bosom or spiritual witness or testimony. How often have you read the Book of Mark? Are you reading it today? Probably is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you? And do you pray every day and read and get that testimony of what you're reading is true? To me, this is misguided. It's even deceptive to continue to insist that the Book of Mormon is true when the facts are to the contrary, simply because I had a feeling in my heart. I had a burning in my bosom. And this becomes the ultimate determination of reality? Where is the humility that the Book of Mormon speaks about? That we can proclaim just based upon our impressions in a prayer that we have the ultimate truth? What arrogance. What absurdity. Where's the humility? Where's the honesty? So we must ask the question, does the identity of God, Jesus, and the nature of the gospel of salvation differ between the Mormon scriptures and the Bible? LDS prophet and president Gordon B. Hinckley is quoted as saying, as a church, we have critics, many of them. They say we do not believe in the traditional Christ of Christianity. There is some substance to what they say. Our faith, our knowledge, is not based on ancient tradition. Our faith, our knowledge, comes of the witness of a prophet in this dispensation. The prophet of the Mormon Church, Gordon B. Hinckley, has stated that he does not believe in the Christian Christ. He believes in the Christ that Joseph Smith taught. Boy, they get mad at us when we suggest that that's a different Jesus. And the... you, quote, you quote him, you quote Hinckley, and you say, this is what your prophet stated. Yeah. And, there is, and they'll still get mad at you, but but how can they argue with you? If, you, if their prophet states that fact, they can get mad at you all they want, but they can't argue with you. So no, uh, Mormons uh, do not believe in the same Christ. And Paul said that if anybody else brings you any other gospel, that you reject them. Okay, and what gospel is that? Well, the gospel that we have in the New Testament. And, and so if you accept Paul's writings as, as truth, then you've got to ask yourself, how then can I accept a different gospel? How then can I accept a different Christ? That's a very consistent picture throughout the New Testament, but it's trust in Jesus Christ that leads to salvation and him alone. 
to take on an extra book of scripture uh, and a different picture of God from the one that's been handed down in these scriptures is a very serious thing indeed. The Book of Mormon is going to divert people away from the true gospel of Christ. Today, there is a big push in the church to, to look more Christian. I think the motivation behind that is uh, converts. If the Mormon church is shown to be a Christian organization, and along with that, they have very high morals and really promote family life and help each other and things like that, then it's more easy to convert somebody to the religion. No matter how much the Mormon church wants to make you believe that they're this pristine organization, um, the fact of the matter is that they're not. Um, and people say that, you know, the people of the church aren't perfect, but the church is. Well, if the church is based on lies, the lie of the Book of Mormon, uh, then I can't condone it. As a Mormon scholar, I wonder why is it that we're afraid of the truth? Why is it that we won't be honest about how the Book of Mormon was created, where it came from, what it says, tell the truth about ancient America? Why is it that we have to reconfigure the images of, of ancient America to fit our own prejudices, our own stereotypes, instead of dealing honestly and forthrightly with the problems of archaeology, of genetics, of linguistics, uh, and let the let let the truth be told. Uh, what do we fear? Is our faith in Joseph Smith or in Jesus Christ? When I investigated the Mormon faith, I did it originally because I wanted to see if it was true. If this was God's real revelation to Joseph Smith, I wanted to know about it. And I set time aside, I read the Book of Mormon, I attended church, I went, to, I went to classes at the local institute, I did everything one should do if they wanted to learn more about the Mormon faith. And what I found was that I was growing farther and farther away from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Is my faith based upon something historical? Very important question to ask. And for me, I found that the more that I've delved into delved into philology and delved into archaeology and all the historical aspects of the faith and of the text. My faith has only, only grown stronger and stronger. And what we have in our Bible is sufficient for salvation. And so it's important not to be scared of trying to learn more. Because for me, and especially, the more I've learned, the more I've come closer to Jesus Christ. When I understood that the Book of Mormon was not true, that it was not a historical accounting, and that it simply was religious fiction. When I understood that, I took it at face value that the, when the prophet says that the Book of Mormon is the cornerstone of the religion, at that point I knew that the religion could not be true. With my loss of faith in the Book of Mormon, 
my understanding and my faith in the New Testament as a book of Scripture has increased. Which Christ do you follow today, the biblical Christ or the biblical Christ? I follow the biblical Christ. Um, all the, the guilt that had been piled upon me for years for not doing everything perfectly, which is what Mormonism wants. You, you've got to do everything perfectly. Since I didn't, since the church was not true, the guilt was able to wash off. Then, as you came into a belief in in Jesus Christ as a as a Christian, did guilt and all those kinds of perfection needs come back on you, or no? No. And the reason for that is I looked at the statement stated by Jesus in the New Testament. The New Testament teaches us that the only thing that we need to make it to heaven is the sacrifice of, of Jesus and belief, faith. No guilt. What if you get excommunicated? If I get excommunicated from the Mormon Church, it will bring closure for me. Uh, because then, then I could say, I, I guess I'm, I'm now done. And I could leave it all behind. Jesus says in Matthew 7.13 that wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. In John 14.6, Jesus says of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Mormon apostle Orson Pratt said of the Book of Mormon, if false, it is one of the most cunning, wicked, bold, deep-laid impositions ever palmed upon the world, calculated to deceive and ruin millions who will sincerely receive it as the Word of God, and will suppose themselves securely built upon the rock of truth until they are plunged with their families into hopeless despair. So we did this project as a, as a labor of love, love to the Mormon people. We, we invested a lot of time and effort and resources into this project because we want the Mormon people to come into a relationship with the real Jesus Christ, the, the Jesus of the Bible. The Bible shows itself to be an authentic historical account. So we can then move on and ask the next question, is it scripture? Well, uh, this is a matter of faith. But it's faith that's based upon real history. Uh, it's not blind faith. Jesus Christ is a historical person, and he made radical claims. Uh, he warns, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets in order to deceive. We have presented evidence that shows clearly and overwhelmingly that the Christ and the prophets of the Book of Mormon uh, are false, and that the Jesus and the story told about him in the Bible is an accurate historical account. Consider how definitive his statement in John 3.16 is when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And our final question to you is simply, do you believe him?
claims to be Christian, but deviates from the defining doctrines of Christianity. He's called leader, or the organization itself becomes the savior. As it says in Jude, uh, we contend for the faith. They suffer tremendous humiliation at the hands of leaders who are not leading like Jesus did. Taking Christian terminology, but applying totally different definitions to it. And lo and behold, you have a cult. A cult is born. He said, you guys believe in a different God than we do. The church does not define what scripture is. Scripture creates the church. It is evil to pervert the word of God. Hi there. I'm Elder Smith, and this is Elder Pascal. Hi, I'm Younger Jones. Sorry, it's just that I'm the youngest of three sisters. Got it. We're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have a program that's been proven to strengthen families, and we'd be honored to share it with you, absolutely free of charge. Are you interested? Well, I already attend church. Redeemer Presbyterian, right down the road? That's wonderful. This is information that all faiths can benefit from, and if you allow us to come in, we can tell you more about it. Well, to be completely honest, I believe that as Mormons, you are members of an anti-Christian cult. To invite you in would be a violation of the Apostle John's command to not receive anyone into your home who comes preaching another gospel. I'm sorry, but I'm not interested. And if I could just make a suggestion, read the Bible. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you the truth about God the Son. I'll be praying for you. Goodbye. In today's religiously diverse and relativistic culture, taking a stand like Joan does here may seem extreme to many people, if not downright rude. And even those who believe in the concept of absolute truth and even further believe that Jesus is the only way to eternal life can still get confused about what is what. Just why are Baptists properly considered Christians while Mormons aren't? And why is a Jehovah's Witness religion classified as an anti-Christian cult while Presbyterians, Wesleyans, and Pentecostals are simply seen as denominations within the Christian faith? With the explosion of different sects that claim to honor and follow Jesus, how does one differentiate between true biblical Christianity and an aberrant religious movement? Just what are the marks of a cult? Some may view the term cult as being harsh, unloving, judgmental, and even un-American. This is, after all, a nation known for tolerance and religious freedom. If someone is sincere, who are we to judge their beliefs or label them with a negative term like cult? I would turn it around and say it's unfair and unkind for them to claim uh, that kind of identification, especially when they import new meanings into what is historic Christian uh, terminology and doctrine. So I really think the unkindness and unfairness is, is really that of the individual who uh, we would identify as a cult, that is an individual especially who uh, departs from historic Christian teaching. The problem is in America we don't have any religious uh, fair labeling laws. You know, you couldn't get away with this if you were 
uh, selling a product and you've mislabeled it in the stores. The, the ingredients have to be there on the label. In Christianity, you, ha you don't have that. So anyone can come along and say, I'm a Buddhist Christian, or I believe in Muhammad, but I'm a Christian. There's, there's no way that you can uh, legislate that. Everyone involved with this presentation would defend people's right to worship or not worship as they please. If someone wants to devote themselves to Jesus or Aphrodite or nature or money or pleasure or a political ideology or themselves, both the God of the Bible and our Constitution, give them that freedom. I've got to go into a meeting, 10 minutes. Now the Fed's getting ready to announce whether or not they're going to raise rates. I need to be there. If Trinidad calls, tell them if IBM gets a 64, they need to put a market order in for 2,000 shares. That's very important that they know that. Oh, wait a minute. Make sure that I have 20 copies of the latest edition of Milton Friedman's book about capitalism in America. I've got to give those to my clients. But devotion to a particular ideology means embracing and being faithful to a specific set of beliefs. No true communist, for example, would support making a living from buying and selling stocks. Neither would they tolerate the teachings of Adam Smith or Milton Friedman. A person who did such things would simply be labeled, for the sake of clarity and definition, a capitalist or an anti-communist. Well, in precisely the same way, no person or organization can call itself Christian if they don't embrace the central tenets that gave rise and definition to the term Christian. And if they actively deny those tenets or refer to anyone who does believe them as being wrong or deceived, they can be fairly termed anti-Christ. I can't believe that you won't accept me as a Christian. Uh -huh. I mean, look at the good the Mormons do. Yeah, it's but the same good that Christ taught us to no, do. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. And more, hold on. More importantly, I believe in Christ. Yeah, okay. and I believe that He died on the cross for my sins. Yeah, you, you say you believe in Christ. The latter-day Saints say they believe in Christ, but it's a different Christ than the one the Bible teaches. Oh, you believe in Christ that dies for a much different reason. I completely disagree with you. And in fact, I think that's nitpicking. It's All not. It it's not nitpicking. Okay, what if I were to put it this way? What if somebody or myself sincerely believes? that the angel Lucifer came down, visited the prophet to test Josephine Smith. Ah, Josephine Smith. Josephine Smith. Took her to some lead tablets that were written by the king of Atlantis. It's crazy. Okay, I know it's crazy, but I'm making a point, so let me finish, and you'll understand. Okay. What if those tablets said that Christians are supposed to hang out until the end of time, wait for Christ to return so they can rule their own planet someday as gods, right? Mm. In the meantime, they're supposed to abstain from sex and become fruitarians. Okay? If I sincerely believe... Was this here? If I sincerely believe that, would you consider me a Mormon? Of course not. Okay, and why not? The Church of Latter-day Saints doesn't teach that, doesn't expect us to believe in any kind of nonsense like Well, except for the part of ruling your own planet as gods. But that's my point, is the Bible has some very specific foundational things that are expected to be believed, and the Mormons have veered away from those. In fact, in some cases, it's the exact opposite. That's why I can love you like a friend, and I do, but you and I can't be considered brothers in Christ. It should be obvious if you think about it. Claiming to be a Christian doesn't make you a true follower of Christ any more than calling yourself a vegetarian makes you one regardless of what you believe or do. In order to be a Christian, you must submit yourself completely to Christ and believe the Bible and its teachings. The second reason we must know the marks of a cult 
and not be afraid to use the label, is that we are commanded by Scripture to protect the apostolic faith and to condemn any misrepresentations of the Lord Jesus and his word. Almost every one of the New Testament books addresses the need to speak the truth and to avoid error. The only way you can avoid error is by identifying it and by saying it's wrong in comparison with this standard. The word Christian means something. Um, Christianity has always been associated with a certain belief system, with a worldview, that there is one God who exists in three persons, who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and that revelation is recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures that have been passed down by other Christians through the church for 2,000 years. As it says in Jude, uh, that uh, we are to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So the Christian faith has a certain set of beliefs that, uh, that uh, comprise what it means to be a Christian. And if someone believes something that contradicts that set of beliefs or somehow goes beyond what that set of beliefs uh, is all about, then, then by definition they have departed from that Christian faith. For the true Christian, defending the faith is not an option. It's a solemn responsibility. There are several verses that make this clear, but let's consider a few points found in the third verse of the book of Jude. Beloved, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. First, note that Jude says the faith and not faith. There is only one holy apostolic faith. Next, we can see that Jude describes this faith as being once for all delivered to the saints. This means that it's universal and immutable or unchangeable, that nothing is to be added to or taken away. There will never be a need to revise the faith in some way in order to make it more relevant to a particular people or generation. Finally, we are commanded to contend. In the original Greek, to epagonizomi, to struggle earnestly, to strive for this holy, immutable, apostolic faith. He is addressing all believers. And when he says that we are to, to contend for the faith, he uses a word that's extremely descriptive. It's the, the term that eventually comes into our language as agonize. Well, we are to agonize for the faith. The faith is once for all delivered to the saints. This means that there will be those who will attempt to twist and pervert the faith. We have a holy obligation to actively resist and expose their doctrine as false and ultimately satanic. And as we'll see, this earnest defense of the faith isn't directed so much at pagan belief systems, though there's certainly a place for that as well. No, the apostles were far more concerned about heretical beliefs that would spring up from within the church. Teachings that had the appearance of being Christian and biblical, but were in reality distortions of the truth. For I know this, Paul said, that after my departure, savage wolves would come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. 
there will be false teachers among you. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. It is not surprising, then, if his, speaking of Satan, servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Over 25 times in the New Testament alone, God warns us about the potential for deception from Satan, from false teachers, and from within ourselves. In fact, there are few things in Scripture that are emphasized more. Understanding this innate and ever-present susceptibility to deception, we must be all the more vigilant concerning the things we believe, making sure that we trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not to our own understandings. And here we would also do well to remember another vital truth. For something to be true, it has to be completely true. Inject into it even the smallest falsehood, and we are left with a lie, one that is all the more powerful and deceptive because of its proximity to the real thing. We live in a time when cults are sprouting up everywhere and thriving like weeds. There are many reasons for this, the growth of moral relativism and multiculturalism, coupled with the explosion of information transfer technologies, are among the more notable. But there is perhaps one preeminent reason, one that is completely the fault of the church. The Bible declares that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, a fortress that stands against the father of all lies the evil, deceiving spirit that ultimately stands behind every cult. Furthermore, Christians are called to be salt and light, a people who can restrain sinful man's natural tendency towards spiritual decay and darkness. It's amazing what you can get Christians to do to fight moral evil. But they won't do that in the theological realm because they don't see that there is an ethical aspect of God's truth at that level. As Dr. Walter Martin, perhaps our generation's most noted expert on the cults, observed, the cults have capitalized upon the failure of the Christian church to understand their own teachings and to develop a workable methodology both to evangelize and to refute cult adherence. One of the things that is just really the most unfortunate thing of our day and age is we've got more information above and in front of us with the Internet, with books, uh, books on CD, uh, and we are just unlearned. We are an ignorant church. Our prayer is that this presentation will not only help deliver people from the influence of cultic theology, it will also inspire a new love for biblical truth among God's chosen people. May the church once again fulfill her calling to be the foundation and protector of the only truth that can set men free. Something that's out of the mainstream, certainly way out of the mainstream, as it was in the, it would be called a cult. A religious sect that's anti-something, like they have a cause and they're willing to die for it. It's just like really strong. A group with one very strong charismatic leader that proposed a better way of life, but yet 
took advantage of his followers. Group people who, uh, I guess, they don't really think for themselves, and they just kind of follow one guy's line, and they don't like the woman's up as well. I think about looking up with that, you know, the pentagram on the floor and that business, but that's just me. Fanatics. Mind control. Brainwashing. Witchcraft. Sexual deviance. Uh, satanic, demonic groups of people come together for evil purposes. I also think of, like, anti-government communism stuff, too. Sun Yun Moon. <laughs> that guy, the Heaven's Gate guy. You hear about that, Desiree? Jim Jones called and the running shoes. And, yeah, just the basic, you know, cliche image. You know, everyone in white robes, beards. That's a punch. Anybody that says, if you don't do this, you, you know, you're not going to heaven or anything like that. That's a cult. Anybody that says, we know the way and this is the way, unless you do it this way, you're not going anywhere. That's a cult. Most conventional religions now were cults at one time. And so if a cult is only, if it lasts a while, it will soon be uh, part of the social mores and it be accepted in that way. Proper definitions are essential to real communication and understanding. Anytime people use the same term but don't mean the same thing by it, confusion and misunderstanding inevitably result. Many times it's not unusual to run across uh, individuals who share certain vocabulary that Christians or evangelicals uh, do, and as a result you have to stop and say now, let me understand what it is you mean by that, and let me explain to you what I mean by that. And in the process of uh, that give and take, you find out what the differences are, and you can get to the heart of the issue more effectively. So what exactly do we mean by the term cult? Well, like many words, it has more than one meaning. So we'll begin with its etymological root, the original Latin word cultus, from which we get our modern term. Its classical meaning encompassed worship, adoration, honor, service, respect, observance, and attendance, terms that we would associate with religious duty. Working from this Latin root, our modern dictionaries define cult in its primary sense as a system of religious worship or ritual, a devoted attachment to or extravagant admiration for a person or principle, and a group of followers. But this is not what most people think about when the word cult is used today. And it's certainly not the way we are using the term in this presentation. Focusing on the more common use of the word cult, that is, as a negative term used to describe aberrant beliefs or practices, one non-Christian cult watch group defines it using the acronym B-I-T-E, or BITE. They explain that when a person or group exerts behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotion control over its followers, then that group should be classified as a cult. Though this is helpful, from a biblical perspective, there are still some problems with the definition. In the end, it's based upon human observation and not the Word of God. Therefore, it doesn't address the theological landmines that, if believed, will result in a person losing his eternal soul. To dial in on the word as it would be defined in the context of an explicitly biblical worldview, Dr. Walter Martin defined a cult as a group of people polarized around someone's interpretation of the Bible 
and characterized by major deviations from Orthodox Christianity relative to the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, particularly the fact that God became man in Jesus Christ. In his book, Confronting the Cults, Dr. Gordon Lewis was even more specific. A cult is any religious movement which claims the backing of Christ or the Bible, but distorts the central message of Christianity by an additional revelation and, two, by displacing a fundamental tenet of the faith with a secondary matter. Although these definitions are accurate and helpful, we're going to make them a bit more memorable by using the most basic symbols of mathematics, add, subtract, multiply, and divide. A group can be classified as a cult when they, number one, add to the 66 books of the Bible. The group does this by relying on some new so-called revelation, either new scriptures or by the discovery of an interpretive key to the Bible that has somehow been hidden from the historic church. Number two, subtract from the triunity of God by either denying the personhood or the deity of one or more members of the Godhead. Number three, multiply works necessary for salvation. And number four, divide the loyalties of their followers from God and historic and universal church by focusing on salvation as the exclusive province of their particular group. It's important to understand that while the major cults deny the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith, they still insist they're Christian, often the only or at least the truest Christians. And this is the reason why the historic church has classified them as counterfeit or anti-Christian cults rather than as pagan or non-Christian religions. The difference between a cult and a world religion is, and by world religion, I mean like Buddhism or Hinduism or something of the like, is these groups do not claim to be Christian. What makes a group a cult, at least according to Christian terminology, is they claim to be Christian, and yet they deny the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. Throughout this presentation, we will refer to several historic creeds and confessions of the church. In an era when creeds and confessions have fallen on hard times, it would be good to remind ourselves why they're so important. The word creed comes from the Latin meaning credo. It's simply, I believe. And I know it sounds good to say no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. But it's actually contradictory, because when you say that, you have a creed. Now, the question I would like when somebody says that, which Christ? No creed but Christ. Well, which Christ? The Mormon Christ, who's the spirit brother of Satan? The Jehovah's Witness Christ, who is subordinate to the Father. I mean, what Christ are you going to define? And the minute they define a Christ, they're creating or expanding upon their creed. Same thing with the Bible. No creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. Well, what do you consider the Bible? Um, The 66 books of the Protestant Bible or the 80 books of the Roman Catholic Bible? How about the Mormon editions, the Doctrines and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price? What about the Jehovah's Witness Bible, known as the New World Translation? Um, You can go on and on, Mary Baker Eddy and Science and Health with Keys to the Scripture. You can add all sorts of things to the Bible, so you've got to define what's the Bible. That's why every Reformation creed 
defines the Bible as the 66 books which constitute the Old and the New Testament. So to say no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible sounds good, maybe even makes you sound a little holy, but in the end it's meaningless. So now let's look more closely at the marks of a cult. by adding to the 66 books of the Bible by new words and or by claiming to have a new interpretive key. The first thing any false teacher has to do is to get rid of the corrective ability of the Word of God that would keep him from exercising authority over others. He has to develop a unique way to mute the Word of God, to gag God in his Word. Many other historic creeds and confessions could be cited, but consider the words of the Baptist Confession of 1689. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people be now ceased. The closure of the canon of Scripture is related to the whole issue of, of cults, and the cults have a tendency to, to say, we have new revelation. This man is our prophet. That man is, is our prophet. This woman is our prophet. Because they don't recognize the completion of revelation in Scripture, they are left to be blown about by every wind of doctrine. Perhaps Dr. Curtis Crenshaw summed it up best. If anything is contrary to Scripture, it's wrong. If anything is the same as Scripture, it's not needed. If anything goes beyond Scripture, it has no authority. Anything that contradicts Scripture is necessarily false because God doesn't contradict himself. Anything that goes uh, uh, beyond what Scripture says is not needed and is in fact not authoritative because God didn't say it, and God told us that Scripture was enough. God told us that we live by every word that comes forth out of his mouth. That means I don't live by other things. And then anything that... Uh, that neither contradicts Scripture nor goes, goes beyond Scripture, but essentially just simply reproduces, repeats what Scripture says, is superfluous. There are at least two reasons that come to mind as to why the canon must be closed. One, I believe uh, the Bible itself indicates this. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, uh, we're told that in the past God spoke through the prophets in diverse ways, but uh, in these last days he has spoken, past tense, through his Son. The revelation of Jesus Christ is complete. Uh, when he came and his apostles who were commissioned by him spoke uh, the words of Christ, uh, that's all that God intended to say to us. We have in the, New Test in the Old and New Testament canons um, all that God wants and intends to say to us. The book of Revelation confirms this in chapter 22 when it tells us not to add any other words to this book. We're told there in those verses that the canon is closed. Practically speaking, however, <clears throat> uh, if the canon is not closed, then the canon 
ceases to be a canon. To say the Bible is our canon of Scripture is to say that it is the standard, it is the authority for faith and practice. And yet if we allow for extra-biblical revelations for continuing information from God uh, subsequent to the, the, the Bible, to the writing of the biblical books, then um, that canon ceases to be the final word. It ceases to be authoritative. A good example of adding to the Bible can be found in the writing of Charles Taze Russell, founder of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, better known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Furthermore, not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself, but we see also that if anyone lays the scripture studies aside, even after he has used them, after he has become familiar with them, after he has read them for 10 years, if he lays them aside and ignores them and goes to the Bible alone, though he has understood his Bible for 10 years, our experience shows that within two years, he goes into darkness. On the other hand, if he had merely read the scripture studies with their references and had not read a page of the Bible as such, he would be in the light at the end of the two years because he would have had the light of the scriptures. Russell's uh, statement there is really a, a, a wonderful admission that what the Bible teaches is historic Christianity's orthodox doctrines. And when he says, you will only stay in the light if you read the Bible along with my books to explain the Bible, well, what he's really doing there is acknowledging that the Bible doesn't teach what he says it teaches, and that if people will only study the Bible, they won't get what he wants them to get. So the Bible is an orthodox doctrine uh, document because it defines orthodoxy. And Charles Taze Russell was simply wanting us to put his writings above Scripture and authority. If you drop the Bible on an island where people have never heard of Christianity, what Russell is really saying is that they would never come to salvation because they don't have the benefit of having his studies in the Scripture. They would never come to the theology of the Watchtower. As a matter of fact, Russell said that they would revert right back to the doctrines of Christendom. Since writing those words, Charles Taze Russell has fallen out of favor with the cult that sprang up from his teachings. But the Watchtower Society continues to echo the core idea expressed in this previous passage, that people need them if they are to properly understand the Bible. Thus, the Bible is an organizational book and belongs to the Christian congregation as an organization, not to individuals regardless of how sincerely they may believe that they can interpret the Bible. For this reason, the Bible cannot be properly understood without Jehovah's visible organization in mind. They say that it's sufficient to read the Bible exclusively, either alone or in small groups at home. But strangely, through such Bible reading, they have reverted right back to the apostate doctrines that commentaries by Christendom's clergy were teaching 100 years ago. You can't understand the Bible by itself, by yourself. You have to have our literature to explain it to you. And then you can understand the, the grand sweep of what the Watchtower says is God's plan of, of salvation. But without their literature, you will never understand it. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more commonly known as the Mormon Church, 
boldly and unequivocally acknowledges that their theology is substantively based on extra-biblical revelation. The official statement of faith of the LDS Article 8 states, We believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. So there's a condition put on the Bible that has to be translated correctly by them, but there's no condition put upon the Book of Mormon because the Book of Mormon is seen by the Mormon Church as higher revelation. In fact, two other books besides the Book of Mormon are seen as being equal to the Bible. The way Joseph Smith said it is, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. What he really meant to say was transmitted. They believe that through the, through the ages that the Bible has been uh, edited, that it's been redacted, that uh, many plain and precious things have been taken out of the Bible, so that the product we have now, we don't know if even one verse has escaped uh, without corruption through the centuries. So when they say they believe, they believe the Bible, there's a big caveat there. There's a big question mark there. When I was a Mormon, I was told that there are four scriptures, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. However, I was told only one of those books have error in it, and that would be the Bible. The truth is that Mormons really see their three books as being more defined and authoritative than today's Bible. Why? Because their books haven't been corrupted over the years. They are precisely as their prophet Joseph Smith recorded them. On the other hand, the Bible we have today, according to Smith and other leaders, is filled with errors and can therefore not be accepted as being completely accurate or trustworthy. I believe the Bible as it read, Smith declared, when it came from the pen of the original writers, ignorant translators, careless transcribers, or designing and corrupt priests have committed many errors. They have to ultimately deal with the authority of Scripture, either by denying the Scripture can be trusted, or to go in and actually change and alter the Scripture, or even, of course, to add new scripture which supersedes or is superior to the scripture. Modern Mormonism, as in this quote from the 20th century apostle Bruce McConkie, continues to echo Joseph Smith's low view of today's Bible. Many plain and precious things were deleted from the Bible, in consequence of which error and falsehood poured into the churches. One of the great heresies of modern Christendom is the unfounded assumption that the Bible contains all of the inspired teachings now extant among men. I've never met a Mormon who would actually go to a specific passage and say, you see, this is wrongly translated for this reason. It's just an excuse. In the Restoration, according to Mormon beliefs, God used Joseph Smith to reestablish the true church with its apostles and priests as well as to recover the real Bible and the keys to its proper interpretation. Listen to the words of Orson Pratt, one of the original 12 apostles of the LDS Church. I saw his, Joseph Smith's, countenance lighted up as the inspiration of the Holy Ghost rested upon him, dictating the great and most precious revelations now printed for our guide. I saw him translating by inspiration the Old and New Testaments, and the inspired book of Abraham from Egyptian papyrus. 
Joseph Smith's translation of the Old and New Testaments, it should be noted, included several thousand additions, deletions, and rearrangements of the ancient scriptures. Oddly enough, funny enough, the Book of Mormon itself does not teach Mormon theology. As a matter of fact, you can find enough scripture, biblical scripture, in the Book of Mormon to contradict Mormonism. The reason for that is because Joseph Smith, when he wrote the King James, uh, wrote the uh, Book of Mormon, he plagiarized the King James Version of the Bible, uplifted hundreds of verses out of the King James Version, and planted it in the Book of Mormon. Now, obviously, God in his providence has allowed that, that we can use the Book of Mormon to actually lead a Mormon out of Mormonism because the Book of Mormon contradicts Mormonism. Their actual theology is contained much more in their Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price. In the 2005 edition of The Religious Educator, a journal published by Brigham Young University, the primary Mormon college, the professor of ancient scripture, Joseph Fielding McConkie, was interviewed concerning his new book, The Bruce R. McConkie Story, Reflections of a Son. McConkie Sr., as we saw earlier, served as an apostle and preeminent theologian within the LDS Church. What was the most important principle your father shared with you about teaching the gospel? The single most important principle that I learned from my father was to be true to the revelations of the restoration. They are the key, he said, by which we unlock the true meaning of all that was taught or revealed to the ancients. Along much the same lines, the Reverend Sun Young Moon, founder of the Unification Church, attempts to justify his addition to the scriptures by first questioning the power, veracity, and relevance of using just the Bible. The Bible, however, is not the truth itself, but a textbook teaching the truth. Naturally, the quality of teaching and the method and extent of giving the truth must vary according to each age, for the truth is given to people of different ages who are at different spiritual and intellectual levels. Therefore, we must not regard the textbook as absolute in every detail. Another quote by Moon is even more revealing concerning his view of the authority and sufficiency of the scriptures. Until our mission with the Christians is over, we must quote the Bible and use it to explain the divine principle. After we receive the inheritance of the Christian church, we will be free to teach without the Bible. Reverend Moon takes the approach that many do. They want to use the Bible, keyword use. Uh, it's part of the sheep's clothing. They say we believe the Bible. They hold a Bible. They even quote occasionally from the Bible. The problem is that the Bible uh, is not inerrant. It's not the Word of God. It's far, uh, uncorrupted. And so what you need is you have to add something else on here to basically fix the Bible. In this case, it's the divine principle. And so Reverend Moon comes back and puts his theology on top of the Bible. And for uh, a, a Unification Church member, the, the, the idea is that's going to always uh, supersede what the Bible says because the Bible, again, great book, it's scripture, but it's got error. Once you, once you do that, once you believe that the Bible has error and you have to look outside the Bible for Latter-day teachers or some other scripture or channeled information, 
basically you're set up that you can believe anything at that point. Christian Science and its founder, Mary Baker Eddy, took the same approach as her contemporary, Joseph Smith, in adding to the Bible, daring first to question its authenticity. The decision by vote of church councils as to what should and should not be considered holy writ, the manifest mistakes in the ancient versions, the 30,000 different readings in the Old Testament, and the 300,000 in the New, these facts show how a mortal and material sense stole into the divine record, with its own hue darkening to some extent the inspired pages. And Mary Baker Eddy definitely adds to the Word of God. What she does, again, in using the Bible, science and health with key to the Scriptures, what she would say is that the Bible has mistakes in it, various versions of the Bible, and so she says you need a key. Basically, she's saying the Bible's a great book, but it's locked. She has the key, the key to the Scriptures. What she does is she superimposes a metaphysical philosophy on top of the Bible so that very plain words, words like sin, sickness, death, completely reinterpreted so that you have it teaching the exact opposite of what the Bible would normally say. Mary Baker Eddy would say once you have the key to the Scriptures, you would realize there is no such thing as sin, sickness, or death. During the mid-1800s, Eddy, Smith, and Russell were joined by another supposed prophet whose revelations, it was claimed, was of the same quality or degree of inspiration as that of Scripture. So you ask a typical Seventh-day Adventist pastor, he will say that Scripture alone is our authority. Ellen G. White, though, is, they recognize, a prophetess. Uh, and But if you uh, ask them the questions correctly, you'll find that they are taking reading the Bible through the lenses, through the glasses, so to speak, of Ellen G. White's writings. She's the infallible interpreter, being a prophetess, of the scriptures. She was alleged to have had some 2,000 visions and dreams, and from them wrote extensively on Christian life and doctrine. She believed and taught that her inspired end-time revelations recovered many long-hidden truths in the Bible. I took the precious Bible and surrounded it with the several testimonies for the church given for the people of God. Here, said I, the cases of nearly all are met. God has been pleased to give you line upon line and precept upon precept. Ellen G. White has been for years the prophetess of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and the leaders of that, now they've had some squabble back and forth in their history about this, uh, but they've always put the writings of Ellen G. White on par with Jesus and the Scriptures. And unfortunately, if the two come in conflict, Scriptures or Ellen G., then the leadership of the church is always siding with what Ellen G. White says. What the Seventh-day Adventists are trying to do is say that, the, that they hold that the Bible alone is, is inspired and, and infallible, as, um, as explained by or as uh, interpreted by Ellen G. White. So you have uh, a lot of very unique doctrines, are very damaging to the gospel doctrines that are, are added on to the Word of God by Ellen G. White under the guise of the spirit of prophecy. Let's look at one last example of addition, this time from one of the fastest-growing cults in America. I'm standing in front of just one of their many thousands of churches, 
This one located, ironically enough, on Trinity Lane. You'll understand the irony when we get to the next section of the presentation. These, quote, oneness Pentecostals, also known as the Jesus-only movement, add to the scriptures not by questioning the authority and authenticity of the Bible, but rather by declaring that without the comparatively recent revelations of the Holy Spirit, the deeper truths of the Bible remain hidden from the historical church. From the foreword of the UPCI's official articles of faith, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the word of the Lord became a new book. Truths, which had been hidden for many years, were made clear. In the year 1914 came the revelation on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The pivotal doctrines of the absolute deity of Jesus Christ and the baptism in his name became tenets of the faith. Well, I think it goes to the attempt to maintain the uniqueness of the cult's claim to revelation. Uh, if they can trace the restoration of that revelatory word to themselves, then they ha that's, that's a means of establishing their authority. Uh, and again, that becomes a matter of uh, where do we find the authority for the gospel resting? Is it in the word or is it in the church? Is it in the one who preaches or is it in the scriptures themselves? By either undermining the authenticity and or sufficiency of the Bible and then adding their own scriptures or their own unique systems of interpretation, these groups have elevated themselves and their extra-biblical teaching to the status of the one true, or at least the most true, faith. Now, we in no way want to lump all these groups together in regard to their degree of departure from historical Christianity. Had Sun Yun Moon been spreading his grotesque false gospel in the latter half of the 19th century, Ellen White might have condemned him just as fast as Charles Spurgeon. Nevertheless, by adding to the scriptural revelation that God has granted the Catholic or universal church, each of them has taken on the first mark of a cult. But most of these cults, self-appointed, self-trained, no real accountability to anybody. And they go off in all sorts of different directions because they've rejected creedal Christianity. And lo and behold, you have a cult. A cult is born. It is evil to pervert the word of God. We've lost a lot of that in our postmodern society in thinking that someone's committing evil by what they teach. But if God has truly revealed his word, then to pervert that word, to, to minimize that word, to put that word as a subordinate authority under someone else's authority is truly a morally evil thing to do. Now we turn our focus, as the cults inevitably do, on the nature of God and his work of redemption. Subtraction is the second mark of a cult. This mark is present whenever a person or group subtracts from the triunity of God by either denying the personhood or the deity of one or more members of the Godhead. The doctrine of the Trinity, in a nutshell, is uh, the belief that there is one God who exists in three persons. Uh, another way theologians put that is that God is one 
in his essence or being, three in person. We're not saying, as Christians, that there is one God and three gods at the same time. That's absurd. There's only one God, only one being, only one entity that is God. And yet, in some way that's very mysterious that we cannot explain, uh, in this one God there are three persons, three personalities. Many who deny the doctrine of the Trinity object and say that it's not taught clearly in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. There are hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament. I don't believe we get a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament does uh, suggest the doctrine of the Trinity. In Genesis 1.26, for example, God says, let us make man in our image. I believe that there is, at the very least, a hint of the triune personality of God. Consider Isaiah 48.16. Come near to me. Hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. Dr. Robert Morey notes in his nearly 600-page book, The Trinity, Evidence, and Issues, if the passage is interpreted in its natural and normal meaning, there are three persons in this passage who are all God. But how can God be sent by God unless there are several persons within the Godhead? Since the Father sent the Son in Trinitarian theology, this is exactly the kind of passage which we would expect to find. The great Baptist scholar John Gill agrees. Here is a glorious testimony of a trinity of persons in the Godhead. Christ, the Son of God, is sent in human nature, and as mediator, Jehovah the Father and the Spirit are the senders of him. While every member of the Trinity has been attacked at one time or another, the most common assault is on the eternal Son of God. The majority of cults today attempt to reduce Jesus to a creation of God as being either just a man or a lesser God. And in this, they fulfill the biblical definition of what it means to be anti-Christ. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ he is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Now, this heresy usually takes two forms, and I'm going to paint with a, a broad brush. One is known as subordinationism, which is what Arius himself taught, that Christ was a deity or a god, but he was a created god, therefore he was not the eternal god, so he is less than the Father. The other view would be Adoptionism, that Christ um, was born a man, and through his obedient act of going to the cross and dying, God awarded him some deity at the resurrection, and so he adopted the nature of godhood. But it's still not the full godhood. Almost all anti-Christian cults teach that Jesus was not fully God. But what says the Bible? Jesus did things that only God could do. Uh, Colossians 1, 15-18 tells us that Jesus Christ created the universe. John 1, 3 tells us the same thing. Uh, by him were all things made, and apart from him was nothing made that was made. Well, obviously, if he was made, then he has to have been made apart from himself. But that verse tells us nothing that was made was made apart from him. 
So therefore, he cannot have been made. If he wasn't made, then he's God. Only God is uncreated. Second Peter, where you have expressions such as Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, that kind of construction in the Greek language indicates the identity of the two titles attributed to Jesus, God and Savior, and consequently we are justified in grounding that kind, or grounding the teaching of Christ as God in texts of that sort. John 8:58, where Jesus is uh, confronting the Pharisees and. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. Uh, Direct reference to Exodus chapter 3, where Moses encounters God in the burning bush, and God says to Moses, I am. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, I am that one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. I am Yahweh, Jehovah God. And that's why they then picked up stones to kill him. Now, if somebody came up and beat you up, and then I turned to him and said, don't worry, I forgive you. That would, be, uh, that would be terribly presumptuous. But Jesus was in the habit of saying to people, your sins are forgiven. I forgive you. Has no one condemned you? Well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's something that only God could do. With the growth of anti-Trinitarianism, it's now more important than ever that Christians both understand and can defend the historic doctrine of the Trinity. It's who God is, and, by the way, essential to understanding just how it is he saves us. Before we move on, allow me to strongly recommend two books that can help you better understand this grand and glorious truth. Dr. James R. White's The Forgotten Trinity and Dr. Cal Beisner's book, God in Three Persons. In examining this subtraction from the nature of God, we'll begin again with the Jehovah's Witnesses, this time looking at their theology concerning the nature and person of Jesus. To the Jehovah's Witness, Jesus is the first thing God the Father, Jehovah, uh, created. Through Jesus, all other things were created. And Jesus became the man Jesus when he was born at Bethlehem, but before that he was the Archangel Michael. And today, now after his earthly life, he's back to being the Archangel Michael. And so Jesus, to the Jehovah's Witness, is not the eternal Son of God. Uh, He became the Son of God. There was a time when he was not that. He was simply an angel. Uh, Jesus, because he is deity, can rebuke any finite creature. He created them. The fact that Michael could not demonstrates that he's not deity. It demonstrates that he's simply one of uh, the angels. The Bible teaches something totally different about Jesus. Uh, Jesus was not a creature. Uh, He is eternally God. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that he created all things. He created all things. um, So he can't uh, be a creature himself. So how did the Watchtower resolve this conflict? Well, they simply printed their own Bible and called it the New World Translation. So what the Watchtower has to do, they have to add to God's Word. They have to go back and correct or inform those passages of God's Word to add the word other. Jesus created all the other things. In other words, they would argue that that, uh, Jehovah created Jesus, and then Jesus created all the other things. Of course, the word other is not in the Greek text. It's not in the New Testament. It's inserted in there. So as not to be accused of misrepresentation, 
Consider just two excerpts from the Jehovah's Witnesses' own literature. Thus, the scriptures identify the word, Jesus in his pre-human existence, as God's first creation, his firstborn son. This son was actually a creature of God. Michael, the archangel, is no other than the only begotten son of God, now Jesus Christ. That Jehovah directly created only one thing, Michael the archangel, and that Michael created all other things. One of the difficulties that Jehovah's Witness has, they can't be consistent in the position uh, of their position that Jehovah alone is God and that Jesus is a created being. One of their real problems is John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now the Jehovah's Witness will say that Jesus in that verse is a God with a small g. Now, the problem is the Watchtower very clearly teaches there's only one true God, every other God's a false God. Well, if there's only one true God, what is a Jehovah's Witness going to do when there's two gods mentioned in John 1.1 alone? The response I normally get from, uh, from uh, Jehovah's Witnesses is that Jehovah is the almighty God, and Jesus is simply a mighty God. Well, you still have the same problem. Is Jesus a mighty true God, or is he a mighty false God? If Jesus is a true God, you have two true gods in the same verse. That's called polytheism. As we turn to the Mormon church, God the Father even becomes a target for subtraction. For the Mormon, the Heavenly Father is Elohim, the God of this world. According to LDS doctrine, he became God by virtue of his good works and adherence to Mormon doctrine on the world in which he was born. When he died, our world, the one we are living on, was his reward, along with thousands of celestial wives. And what is Mormon doctrine concerning Jesus? When I was a Mormon, I would say we believe in Jesus. He's the Son of God. He uh, died on the cross and, and rose from the dead. It all sounds very orthodox at first. What's going on behind the scenes is there's other uh, important theological elements that Mormons would have. I would believe as a Mormon, for example, that Jesus was the Son of God, but he was not the only begotten Son of God. I, would, I was taught as a Mormon that God and his God is married, there's Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, and these uh, Heavenly Parents have billions of spirit children. Jesus was one of them. I, I was taught as a Latter-day Saint that uh, Jesus is our Savior, but uh, another brother of his also wanted to be Savior. They teach, uh, the Mormons do, that Jesus and Lucifer are actually spirit brothers. Uh, I was taught as a Latter-day Saint that, uh, that Jesus um, was not begotten of the Holy Spirit, uh, the Mormon prophet Brigham Young made this real clear. The way Christ was conceived, according to early Mormon leaders, is that the Heavenly Father came to this earth, married the Virgin Mary, and begot the Savior naturally. In fact, when we do a side-by-side -side comparison of several key characteristics of the Mormon Jesus with the one revealed in Scripture, it becomes acutely clear that the LDS follow what the Apostle Paul called another Jesus. The Mormon Jesus was a created being, the elder brother of Lucifer. The biblical Jesus is the uncreated God. The Mormon Jesus is common, one of many gods. The biblical Jesus is unique, the one and only eternal Son of God. The Mormon Jesus was conceived by a physical sex act 
between God the Father, also known as Heavenly Father or Elohim, and Mary, and was thus not a true virgin birth. The biblical Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, who supernaturally overshadowed Mary, and thus was a true virgin birth. The Mormon Jesus provided atonement, though Mormons define this differently, to what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. The biblical Jesus' atonement was made on the cross at Calvary. The Mormon Jesus achieved full salvation, also known as exaltation or godhood, through obedience to the Heavenly Father. The biblical Jesus is eternally God and thus never required salvation. The Mormon Jesus was a married polygamist. The biblical Jesus was unmarried. The Mormon Church teaches that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. The idea of the whole Mormon Gospel, the law of eternal progression, is that Jesus, like the rest of us, are, we are all able to keep progressing. Uh, Mormonism teaches that that human beings, angels, and gods are all the, are all basically the same species. They're all we're all part of the same uh, type of being, and so we're in different levels of development. Jesus potentially has become one of the gods now. Uh, he's our older brother. He sits at the right hand of the Father. But we too have that opportunity to progress in his footsteps and become deity ourselves one day. Where does the Reverend Moon come down on the subject of Jesus' person and nature? Jesus being one body with God may be called a second God, image of God, but he can by no means be God himself. According to Moon, Jesus came as a new Adam in order to redeem mankind. Well, so far, so good. But then he doesn't just miss the mark. He doesn't even hit the wall. Moon teaches that Jesus was not God, but rather a perfect man who was born without original sin. The divine plan was that Jesus would take for himself a perfect bride, a new Eve, and then produce sinless children. Ultimately, other perfect families would be formed, and God's plan for the restoration of humanity would be accomplished. That was what Moon termed the divine principle. The kicker? Jesus failed in his mission. Somehow he managed to get himself crucified before finding his bride, siring children, and fulfilling his mission. The Unification Church is, is very unusual. Their message is blatantly anti-Christ. And by that I mean anti-Jesus Christ, because they believe that Moon is the Christ, and so they're not anti-Christ in that sense, they're just anti-Jesus. You're dealing with a teacher who is in essence fundamentally denying the nature of the Messiah, his mission, and what he accomplished. Since Jesus failed, who can the Mooney look to? Who will fulfill the Messiah's mission? He's justifying the divine principle as extra revelation because he's taking the place of Christ. You don't need to look for the second coming of Jesus. He came from Korea, and he's in our midst right now in the person of Reverend Sun Young Moon. <laughs> Faithful to her Gnostic foundations, Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, proffered the ultimate subtraction. Who cares who the incarnate Jesus was or wasn't? In the end, it's irrelevant. 
If there had never existed such a person as a Galilean prophet, it would make no difference to me. Why did it make no difference to Mary Baker Eddy if Jesus had never been born? My mother's side of the family are Christian scientists, and my cousins are Christian scientists. I went to a Christian science church. This Christian science religion teaches that matter is really an illusion, that it is a mortal lie, sickness is a lie, uh, doesn't exist. So they have to dismiss the whole historical Jesus. Though they now embrace the deity of Christ, Seventh-day Adventists in the early days denied the doctrine of the Trinity, opting for an Arian view that was very similar to the Jehovah's Witnesses. And while they are now far more orthodox, there can still be leftovers from the flawed Christology of the SDA's most influential prophet and teacher. As Ellen G. White wrote in Patriarchs and Prophets, the great creator assembled the heavenly host that he might, in the presence of all the angels, confer special honor upon his son. The father then made known that it was ordained by himself that Christ, his son, should be equal with himself. He, Jesus, was revealed to them as the angel of Jehovah, the captain of the Lord of hosts, Michael, the archangel. If the Christology of the Seventh-day Adventists sounds like the Christology of Jehovah's Witnesses, that's because it is. It should come as no surprise that there are many similarities between the two. Charles T. Russell, founder of the Watchtower, and Nelson Barber, who was a forerunner to the Seventh-day Adventist movement, actually co-authored several books together. Once a cult adds to the Word of God, they inevitably end up distorting the nature of the eternal incarnate Word, often denying that Jesus is fully God, one in substance with the Father and the Holy Spirit, while remaining distinct in their persons. And since Jesus is not God, according to most cult theologies, Calvary was not the sacrifice of the God-man, but simply the death of a man. As a logical result, there cannot be full reconciliation with God through the death of Christ, believing in him and the work of the cross, if it's even necessary, isn't enough. Some additional works must be included, something we'll look at more closely in the next section. What or who is dying on the cross? It's just a man. A good man, but just a man. It's not the God-man that was articulated by Constantinople in 381 or in Chalcedon in 451. You don't have the God-man, God the Son, dying on a cross. You have got a man devoid of deity, and therefore the payment cannot be an infinite payment to pay the cost of an infinite offended God. The United Pentecostal Church claims to embrace the full deity of Christ on the one hand, but then subtracts from the personhood of the Trinity. In contradistinction to biblical Christianity, the UPC teaches God has revealed himself as Father through his Son in redemption and as the Holy Spirit by emanation. When this Pentecostalism traces its roots to the Azusa Street Revival of 1906, approximately seven years later, some of the key figures in the revival rejected the biblical and historical doctrine of the Trinity. Instead, 
They resurrected the ancient heresy of modalism, the idea that God is a single person who, throughout biblical history, has revealed himself in three modes or forms. They taught that the name Jesus is the name for the one God who appeared as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, hence the name Jesus only. The Jesus only theology, um, why this is such a subtle danger is because it all, it, at first glance it sounds biblical, because here you have somebody who, who will say they believe in the deity of Christ, uh, they believe Jesus is God, but what they have done is it, it's an old heresy called modalistic monarchianism. Modalism teaches that there's only one person in the Godhead, and so Jesus is the Father, just going under a different name. The United Pentecostal Church is a cult. They're a cult not only by definition of the early church decrees, but you've got to remember that this doctrine was declared to be cultic by the Orthodox Pentecostal denomination, the Assemblies of God. We didn't create the category of the classification, quoting Dr. Walter Martin. The Assemblies of God did. In the end, cults fall victim to one of the most basic tendencies of fallen human nature. The need to have God conform to our desires and categories of understanding. In an effort to explain away the mystery, cults end up denying the very truth that can set men free. And these people who have not embraced the doctrine of the Trinity have not encountered the God of the Bible. They encountered a God that they fashioned in their own image and their own likeness. Christianity presents a triune God who is beyond awesome, a consuming fire of mystery who is as high above man's carnal reasoning as the heavens are above the earth. For the true Christian, this mystery should provide a profound sense of assurance and joy. A God who didn't transcend our categories of understanding couldn't really be God. As C.S. Lewis said in his classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan is on the move, and he's not a tame lion. He's wild. Many cults reduce God and his persons to that of a man. But does the Bible support this kind of reductionism? Through the psalmist, God asked the children of Israel this rhetorical question. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord. If you can compare the eternal God to a human being who is one being, one person, guess what? That's not the God of Scripture. In fact, it is of necessity that the God of Scripture, the Creator, stands in contradistinction to all of His creation. So there is nothing. That's why every analogy of the doctrine of the Trinity ultimately breaks down. We can't come up with one because all we know is finiteness. God declared throughout the Old Testament, to whom can I be compared? Think about that. The answer is no one. is the third mark of a cult. This mark is present whenever a person or group multiplies works necessary for salvation, instead of justification being by grace alone through faith alone. Cults insist that there's something else a person must do and or believe if they're to be saved. 
And here we need to be on our guard, like with many other Christian truths that cults will publicly use and then privately redefine. Some heretical faiths will claim to believe in justification by faith. As Dr. Walter Martin observed, the average non-Christian cult owes its very existence to the fact that it has utilized the terminology of Christianity, has borrowed liberally from the Bible, almost always out of context, and has sprinkled its format with evangelical cliches and terms wherever possible or advantageous. Up to now, this has been a highly successful attempt to represent their respective systems of thought as Christian. On encountering a cultist, then, always remember that you are dealing with a person who is familiar with Christian terminology and who has carefully redefined it to fit the system of thought he or she now embraces. You know, how could it sound Christian? Because they use Christian terminology. Now, that is one of the things they did at the very beginning, and the most intelligent cults will do that. They'll use Christian terminology and redefine the terms. That is the ultimate goal of Satan and the doctrines of demons, so to speak, is to undermine and supplant those doctrines. The Westminster Confession of Faith, Larger Catechism, gives one of the best summary definitions of justification. It reads, Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners, in which he pardons all their sins, accepts and accounts their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. It's been rightly said that the three most important questions that a person can contemplate are, Who is God? What is his nature? Who are we and why are we here? How can we be reconciled to God? This last question is intimately connected with the other two and is answered by what philosophers and theologians call one's soteriology, from the Greek word soter meaning savior and logos meaning word, matter, or thing. It refers to one's doctrine of salvation, the means by which a person is delivered or saved from that which binds or enslaves him. So just what is the soteriology or doctrine of salvation as taught by the scriptures? The sinner is saved by the sovereign grace of God as God brings into effect in, in time and history the affections that he has set on individuals. God, by his spirit, animates that individual such that, and he gives them uh, uh, repentance and faith. They uh, hear the gospel, the word is spoken, in other words, and uh, then uh, resurrection life uh, comes to pass. So salvation then mimics uh, in the best sense of that word, mimics the work of, of creation in Genesis 1. Sinners are saved by turning from their sin and trusting in the work of Jesus Christ alone to save them. Um, not based, not uh, believing that their works uh, are in any way meritorious, by in fact repudiating their works as being meritorious in the sight of God, but trusting that what Christ did on the cross um, and in his uh, perfect obedience to the law 
if that is all that he needs to be right with God, believing that uh, the imputed righteousness of Christ is all that I need to be right with God, to be justified. That's how a person is saved, placing his trust in Christ alone. Numerous passages can be cited to demonstrate the Bible's clear teaching that we are saved by grace alone, through Christ alone. Perhaps the most obvious is found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Renowned pastor and author John MacArthur explains, Our response in salvation is faith, but even that faith is not of ourselves, but is a gift from God. Faith is nothing that we do on our own power or by our own resources. Otherwise, salvation would be in part by our own works, and we would have some ground to boast in ourselves. The majority of anti-Christian cults will give honor to Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, but then they will multiply it by something else their followers have to do in order to be saved. And what's significant, and also quite interesting, is how closely their false soteriology is connected to an errant understanding of the person and nature of Christ. This has been the attack of the archenemy of the church, because to downplay the deity of Christ is to ultimately surrender the doctrine of justification. Now, why is that? We must remember that God is holy, holy, holy. He is a thrice holy God. Our mildest sin offends him greatly. I mean, if you think about it, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God told them not to do it, but they did. You know, my, my, how many times have my children gotten a cookie? You know, when I told them not to, and they went and got one anyway. Well, I don't treat them the way that God treated Adam and Eve. That's not because God is a mean ogre, but because he's holy, and I'm not. And so even the smallest sin greatly offends God. God doesn't wink at our sin. God is offended by it. He doesn't even want to look on us because we are not reflecting the character of being made in his image. And when we think about that and we think about the fact that Christ came as deity to die in our place, that is because our sins are an infinite offense to the infinite nature of God, and therefore an infinite payment had to be made, and we couldn't make it. So to take away the deity of Christ does what? It opens up the door. You've got a satisfaction that's not a full satisfaction, it's a partial satisfaction. And therefore, something else has to be added to it. And that's what the cults always do. None of them believe in justification by grace alone through faith. They always add some works to salvation. Christ's work is not complete because Christ is not dead. R.J. Rushdoon, in his excellent work, The Foundations of Social Order, Studies in the Creeds and Councils of the Early Church, noted, The Reformed emphasis on the deity of Christ made the Reformation doctrine of justification inevitable. Subordinationism, the idea that Jesus is subordinate to or less than God, gave primacy to nature and hence to the natural ability of man. As a result, man becomes in effect his own savior. 
and grace is cooperating grace. In the cruelty of heresy, C. Fitzsimmons Allison writes, Arius, a third century heretic, denies the oneness of God, the Father, and Christ. Even if one is in Christ, one is not yet reconciled with or at one with God, since in Arius' view, Christ is not God himself. In short, if Jesus is subordinate to the Father, if he's not God himself, co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, then how can the demands of God's justice be met? The answer? They can't. Understanding this, now let's look at some specifics of cultic soteriology. How, for example, is a Jehovah's Witness justified? Jehovah God will justify, declare righteous, on the basis of their own merit, all perfected humans who have withstood that final decisive test of mankind. He will adopt and acknowledge them as his sons through Jesus Christ. Accepting the message of salvation and devoting ourselves to God through Christ and being baptized in water is only the beginning of our exercise of faith. It is only the beginning of our obedience to God. It sets us on the way to everlasting life, but it does not mean our final salvation. Without an adequate Savior, man must supplement his work on Calvary with their own works, whether it's going door to door, whether it's uh, performing uh, ordinances in the temple, or any other requirement that the group puts on them. But the problem with the watchtower view of salvation is it's not the grace gospel. Uh, They'll use the term grace, they'll talk about grace, but ultimately salvation is not what Jesus did. What Jesus did, he paid the ransom, that helps, but your ultimate salvation uh, is based on your performance, what you do. You have to um, be worthy. You have to be the one involved in the door-to-door activity. You have to report on uh, how much time you're spending in kingdom service. And uh, all these things are salvation events. Are salvation. salvation is conditioned upon your uh, performance and obedience. So basically it's not the gospel of grace at all. Now let's turn to the Mormons. Their apostle Bruce R. McConkie explains, As with all other doctrines of salvation, justification is available because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, but it becomes operative in the life of an individual only on the conditions of personal righteousness. I, I was taught as a, as a Latter-day Saint, as a, as a Mormon, in order to have full salvation, I had to be obedient to all the laws and ordinances. And that would include the ones in the Bible and the other scriptures as well, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants. I had to be obedient to what they call the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. I would have to go through, ultimately, to go through the secret temple ritual. So it's very much not the gospel of grace. To have full salvation, if you really want to be where your heavenly Father is in the celestial kingdom, it's based upon your obedience. Uh, Now, Jesus did his part. He opens the door. But your salvation is based on not so much uh, what Jesus did. That's already done. It's based on what you do and what you are. When it comes to the Christian teaching of justification by faith alone, the Mormon apostle James E. Talmadge could hardly have drawn a more contrarian position. The sectarian dogma of justification by faith alone 
has exercised an influence for evil. Joseph Smith, the founding prophet of the LDS, in limiting the efficacious nature of Christ's redemptive work on the cross, went so far as to teach that there are some sins so great that Christ's blood cannot atone for them, that the sinner's blood has to be added as well. Joseph Smith taught that there were certain sins so grievous that man may commit that they will place the transgressor beyond the power of the atonement of Christ. If these offenses are committed, then the blood of Christ will not cleanse them from their sins, even though they repent. Therefore, their only hope is to have their own blood shed to atone, as far as possible, in their behalf. And men for certain crimes have had to atone as far as they could for their sins, wherein they have placed themselves beyond the redeeming power of the blood of Christ. Not only is the way one achieves salvation in the Mormon church different from historic biblical Christianity, what even constitutes salvation is radically different. Salvation in the Mormon church is really the law of eternal progression. It's learning how to become gods and goddesses in the hereafter, in the exalted state. In other words, Mormon salvation is not being justified in the biblical sense. It's actually learning how to become a god. In divine principle and its application, Sun Young Moon characteristically embraces rank heresy boldly and without apology. God is constantly urging and inspiring man to pay off his debt quickly so that man can return to him. Two pages later, he states, if they arrive in the spirit world with unpaid debts, they will have to work to assist perhaps the very ones they hurt in order to pay what they owe. Payment in the spirit is much more difficult, and thus it behooves us to attend to our obligations while we are yet in the flesh. So why does the Bible teach that this is impossible, that man can never pay off his debt through his good works? Well, there are a number of reasons. Among them uh, is that the, the works that man could offer to God would all be tainted with sin and consequently unacceptable. But uh, that just gets us back to the necessity of faith in finding a righteousness that is acceptable to God. And so we must look away from ourselves to the one that God himself has provided, namely to our Lord Christ. And in him we find not only the righteousness, uh, the, the uh, uh, fulfillment of the righteous requirements of the law, but we also find the satisfaction uh, of the penalty of the law, punishment that required by the law once violated. So in Christ we find then that righteousness that the scriptures, uh, that the law requires. The soteriology of Mary Baker Eddy and Christian Science specifically denies the vicarious atonement of Christ's sacrifice, placing salvation firmly in the hands of man. Final deliverance from error, whereby we rejoice in immortality, boundless freedom, and sinless sense, is not reached through paths of flowers, nor by pinning one's faith without works to another's vicarious effort. The Articles of Faith for the United Pentecostal Church International 
under the heading Fundamental Doctrine, states, The basic and fundamental doctrine of this organization shall be full salvation, which is repentance, baptism in water by immersion in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the initial sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. The United Pentecostal Church International, as well as virtually all the Jesus-only, the apostolic, or many of the apostolic churches and the Jesus-only, not only is their, their theology about God off, but salvation is also a work salvation. For a, a, a follower of the United Pentecostal Church International, they would hold that salvation is not just receiving Christ. That's the starting point, but you must be baptized uh, in Jesus' name only, if you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you're going to go straight to hell. You, you, they teach that you must be baptized in Jesus' name only, and even that's not sufficient. You must then speak in tongues in order to be saved. Uh, so uh, basically, uh, then they would also add to that uh, that that will bring you initial salvation, but to maintain your salvation, you have to live according to the standards, what they call the standards. Now, the standards are really not, because they will vary between congregations within the UPCI tradition, the United Pentecostal churches. But some of them would say that your salvation is based on uh, not wearing jewelry. If you wear jewelry, you're going to go to hell. Then some of the groups will say, well, you can wear a watch, but not other jewelry. Or you can wear rings, you can wear a wedding ring, but not other kinds of rings. Uh, women can't cut their hair. Uh, men cannot wear short sleeve shirts. Your eternal life is based on the length of your sleeve. And so what you have is very much a legalism. You have a, a return of the, of the Pharisees, the teaching that your salvation is based on a, a long laundry list of laws that aren't found anywhere in the Bible. When you deny the doctrine of the Trinity, you are ultimately going to end up at a place where you have work salvation. And the United Pentecostal Church, and really any oneness Pentecostal group, is ultimately going to lead their followers down a path where you are going to have to add something to the work of Christ. The Seventh-day Adventist premier prophet and teacher, Ellen G. White, echoed this works-oriented salvation when she wrote, Those who are living upon the earth when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. Their robes must be spotless. Their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. Through the grace of God and their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. The whole idea is that if we uh, can purify our life by the obedience to commandments enough, we will attain that state of eternal life and acceptance before God by our good works. It's a step-gradual process of things that I must do in order to achieve that state. In recent years, Seventh-day Adventists have begun to more critically analyze Mrs. White's prophecies against the standards of Scripture, and as a result have developed a more orthodox understanding of justification by faith. However, many continue to believe a contradictory doctrine in which perfectionism is stressed over faith. If Seventh-day Adventism wishes to survive as, and, and grow, not just survive as a small little irrelevant group, but to grow in the 21st century, there is going to have to be a fundamental reevaluation of what Ellen G. White had to say. 
the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church are cultic. Now, is there, though, enough of the gospel in a lot of Seventh-day Adventist preaching and literature that one of God's children could hear the gospel, repent, and believe? Absolutely. I wouldn't encourage them to stay in the SDA, but I believe I have met Christians who are Seventh-day Adventists, and given the opportunity to counsel with them, I, I usually don't come right out and say, get out of that apostate church or that cultic church. I, I find that it's better to speak the word of God to them in love and allow the spirit to reveal it to them. If they come to me and ask point blank, is the Seventh-day Adventist a cult and should I get out? I say yes. It's just kind of knowing who you're talking to and knowing where you are in the harvesting process. When it comes to understanding human nature, there are few truths more critical to grasp than man's profound need and drive, whether conscious or more often subconscious, to fix the fall, to give back to the garden, to put right what's wrong with the world and with us. Exiled from paradise, men are naturally driven to try to get back in on the basis of the one characteristic they possess that is most like God, moral knowledge. So his natural condition, and among the preeminent consequences of his fall into sin, is his futile, sinful, and yes, even insane reliance upon moral knowledge and its necessary corollary, good works, to achieve salvation. True Christianity stands profoundly alone among the world's religions, philosophies, and psychologies in saying that all our good works are as filthy rags, that we literally can no more help save ourselves as we could resurrect ourselves from the dead. We need an all-powerful, merciful God to redeem us, to pay the penalty for our sins, and then apply that grace to our lives. Every other religion, and this includes those cults that have arisen within the culture of Christianity, looks to something we must do in order to be redeemed. They multiply works necessary for salvation, and in this they depart from the true faith and the very God of Scripture. Every one of us knows that he always falls short of obedience to Scripture. Our conscience is always pointing out to us that we sin, that we sin every day. And James says, hey, if you've broken one part of the law, you've broken it all, because the same God who said don't commit murder also said don't commit adultery. So since we know we cannot measure up to God's law, but we think that there has to be something that we have to do to work to add to what Jesus has done, we will set up new criteria, whether it's how many magazines you can hand out, how many doors you can knock on, how many, how many uh, conversions you can claim from having gone out and, and told what is your version of the gospel. No matter what it is, you will have some substitution of man's commandments for God's commandments, and trying to fulfill those will be the way that you think you're going to earn your way to heaven. manifested whenever any group divides the loyalties of their followers from other Christians. Even more egregious, 
devotion to their visible organization and leaders ultimately becomes the paramount emphasis of their disciples' lives. Ironically and tragically, they end up dividing the loyalties of their followers from God himself. There's something that happens in the cult milieu, the the culture of a cult, that causes the individual to invert that primary loyalty to God so that it becomes the loyalty to the organization, to the group or its leader. And the way that happens is that the cult says or teaches or causes the person to believe that they are the channel, the person or the vehicle through which God speaks to them. So when the Jehovah's Witness opens his Watchtower magazine, this is from Jehovah, but yet the address is Brooklyn, New York. And when the Mormon hears the general authority uh, say something as revelation from God, they think God has revealed this, but it's coming from a pulpit in Salt Lake City. And so this inversion takes place whether they know it or not. By adding new revelations to the Word of God and then subtracting from the deity of Christ, cults are forced to multiply the works necessary for salvation. And because their group is the only one that really understands these things, it logically follows that true and complete salvation can be found nowhere else. Put simply, salvation is found not in Christ, but in their church. They got a self-appointed prophet or apostle or leader who has the keys of interpretation that everybody else has missed. And when you hear that, turn around and run. And the man that doesn't point you to the unadulterated word of God is your enemy, not your friend. A critically important question here. Is salvation something that comes from and through the church? Salvation is of God, and the church is not God. The church is what Christ saves. It is not what saves the people of Christ. The church is simply the people of Christ. For most cults, simply agreeing with their doctrine isn't enough. One must join and serve their visible community, the one to whom the keys of the kingdom have been uniquely granted by God. To be outside their communion is to be in the world of unbelievers. And depending on the cult, the outsider is either lost or is profoundly missing out on the full benefits of salvation. So, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, to hold to the headship of Christ, it is therefore necessary to obey the organization that he is personally directing. Doing what the organization says is to do what he says. Resisting the organization is to resist him. Believing that, it naturally follows. But if we were to draw away from Jehovah's organization, there would be no place else to go for salvation and true joy. In a very real sense, the the cult leader or the organization itself becomes the savior. Uh, It's sometimes even stated overtly in their literature that Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower, see itself as the ark, the saving ark, the vehicle that saves you. Salvation in the Watchtower is simply this. There is no salvation outside of the Watchtower. Anything and everything outside of that is considered to be evil. And the Watchtower, even though a Jehovah Witness will tell us that they are saved by Jehovah's undeserved kindness, 
They have no doubt in their mind that salvation is somehow linked to surviving Armageddon, okay? And in order to survive Armageddon, you have to be found faithful to Jehovah's theocratic organization, the Watchtower. After the death of the Mormon founder, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young became the leader of the church. He taught, no man or woman in this dispensation will ever enter into the celestial kingdom of God without the consent of Joseph Smith. Every man and woman must have the certificate of Joseph Smith as a passport to their entrance. I cannot go there without his consent. He reigns there as supreme a being in his sphere, capacity, and calling as God does in heaven. In this, Young was simply being consistent with what Joseph Smith taught about himself. I have more to boast of than ever any man had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. I boast that no man ever did such a work as I. The followers of Jesus ran away from him, but the Latter-day Saints never ran away from me yet. Later, Mormon Apostle Bruce R. McConkie distilled down this breathtaking heresy into one of the starkest examples of the cultic mark of division and exclusivity in the 2,000-year history of the church. If it had not been for Joseph Smith and the Restoration, there would be no salvation. There is no salvation outside the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Looking now at the Unification Church, during a conference hosted by the Reverend Moon, workshop leader Ken Sudo declared, We are children of true parents because we are born through him, Reverend Moon, and from him we should inherit everything. We have life, we have truth, we have love or sacrifice. At the sacrifice of his life, he gave us life. We were born anew. Therefore, in this meaning, my entire life belongs to him. Therefore, without him, no unification church. Without the unification church, we cannot be here. The fact that we are here now depends upon him. According to their 120-day training manual, complete salvation comes only from within the Unification Church. Turning now to the United Pentecostal Church and one of their primary identifying dogmas, that is the oneness doctrine that denies the triunity of God, the oneness doctrine is important because it upholds biblical Christianity. God marvelously confirmed our message as the gospel was preached in its fullness. The power which was hidden in the name of Jesus began to be revealed. Of course, the Christian church claims to be exclusive Christ because Christ says he alone was the way. Uh, in Christianity, of course, you have different denominations uh, historically that have that had some different understandings about certain doctrines, but we all Christian, true Christian denominations agree on, this, on the deity of Christ, the Trinity, salvation by grace, the essentials of the faith. But um, the cults uh, are exclusive in a different sense. 
they alone, alone, that their leaders alone have the correct understanding of Scripture. And therefore, their group alone is the exclusive way to God. An apologist for the oneness doctrine and the UPCI states, neither the UPCI nor the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World claim their organization is the only true church. No oneness group claims that their organization is the only organization and that all must belong to it to be saved. Yeah, there are certain groups, certain cult groups that um, would say, for instance, well, we're not a cult because we, um, you don't have to belong to our particular move group, a particular denomination or group to be saved. But they will say that um, you must believe the doctrines that our church teaches. You have groups like the Church of Christ and the UPC. Uh, there are differentiations in those movements. The Campbellite, Church of Christ movement, the UPC, United, United Pentecostal Church, UPC, that, um, that distinguish them, such as UPC believes in modalism. They don't deny the Trinity. They teach baptismal regeneration. Save, you're saved uh, as a process. Baptism is the first step that you must do to be saved. Uh, the Church of Christ the same way is a bunch of steps in order to continue on in your salvation to remain saved or to obtain salvation. But uh, it's really kind of deceptive because you might, they might say you don't have to belong to our particular UPC church denomination or our particular Church of Christ, but you must believe our doctrines. Ellen G. White and the Seventh-day Adventist Church viewed themselves as the, quote, remnant church called by God in 1844. They are the church of the last days, and they refer to all other churches as either Babylon, or more pointedly, the harlot or whore of Babylon. G.A. Irwin, General Conference President, from a tract entitled The Mark of the Beast, noted, It is from the standpoint of the light that has come through the spirit of prophecy, given to Ellen G. White and found in her writings, that the question will be considered, believing as we do that the spirit of prophecy is the only infallible interpreter of Bible principles, since it is the Christ through this agency, of which Mrs. White was the instrument, giving real meaning of his own words. Though Mrs. White has long been dead, her books are still considered authoritative. And it's not just her authority that stands outside and above the historic church she invested the same unique power in the leadership of the SDA church. When the judgment of the general conference, which is the highest authority that God has on earth, is exercised, private independence and private judgment must not be maintained, but must be surrendered. Though many SDA scholars have attempted to tone down this rhetoric, a careful analysis of their core beliefs makes it clear that they still see themselves, at least, as the truest church, the purest manifestation of God's end-time purposes. Please note that the groups examined in this presentation are not the only ones who can be classified as cults. They are among the most popular and hence destructive, but there are others.
We're also not saying that these four marks are the only characteristics of a cult. Many, as we've already alluded to, teach that the early church was quickly corrupted by Greek thought, political maneuverings, money, or some other Luciferian deception. And as a result, the true gospel was lost. Lost, that is, until their founder showed up to recover the true way of salvation. And it allowed them uh, to dismiss, therefore, the teachings of all the Orthodox churches that exist today. Because all the Orthodox churches are part of the, the, uh, the falling away, of the apostasy. So they can leapfrog back, at least in their minds, to some earlier pristine gospel that the current churches uh, are not teaching. And say that we have recovered what was lost. Uh, one of the things, and I've often thrown this up to men in the restoration movement, which is represented today by the churches of Christ, they must of necessity, because of their view of scripture, their view of theology, their view of justification, which had not been taught, according to them, for 17, 1800 years until they restored the gospel, hence the restoration movement. And I asked a, a dear friend one time who was in this movement, and I believe this movement is cultic. Um, I asked him, I said, now, Jesus said in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Friend, you must believe that Jesus was wrong. You have to believe that somehow the gates of hell did prevail against the church and the gospel was lost. Otherwise, why would it have to be restored? See, the difference between restoration is you're restoring that which was lost versus reformation. You're refining what we still have, but you're purifying it. Counterfeit Christian groups will often come to us and say that the, that the church has failed, that there, is, there was no true Christianity on the face of the earth until their group comes along. So they have to restore the missing truth. And uh, while the Bible does talk about times of apostasy and even great apostasy, God has always had a people. Jesus said, upon this rock I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Echoing this sentiment, listen to the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The church may go through her dark ages, but Christ is with her in the midnight. She may pass through her fiery furnace, but Christ is in the midst of the flame with her. There's another interesting and significant similarity between the groups we've examined here. Most had their roots in America during the first half of the 19th century. Was there something in the water at that time? Or were there ideas floating around that provided fertile soil for the growth of cultic theologies? As Christianity abandoned the Puritan mind, there was at the same time the revivalism of the 19th century was motivated by a new emphasis upon eschatology, upon prophecy. The first half of the 19th century was a time when so-called Christian prophets predicted doom, gloom, and the any-day return of Christ. Like dime romance novels, thousands of books, tracts, and newspapers were published declaring the end was near. The Millennial Harp, published by William Miller, founder of the Adventist movement. The Millennial Harbinger, published by Alexander Campbell, one of the key founders of the, quote, restoration movement. The explosive growth of dispensational premillennial theology, as popularized by J.N. Darby and the Plymouth Brethren and the unorthodox revivalism of Charles Finney. All helped
fashion an America that was, as one historian put it, drunk on the millennium. The birth of these anti-Christian sects is among the most tragic results of the subsequent hangover, as noted by Dr. Jan Carol van Balen. Cults are the unpaid bills of the church. It's time for the church to get sober and start paying our tab, our debt to the culture we've been called to serve. The virus of false and deceiving doctrine needs to be addressed like perhaps no other time in modern history. Its only antidote is the grace of God and a people who can rightly divide the word of truth, who can cast down vain imaginings and everything raised up against the true knowledge of God. A people who by reason of use have trained their senses to discern good and evil. Others have been faithful to this call in previous generations, sometimes at the cost of their lives. May it be said of us that we too are faithful, serving the purposes of God in our generation. All right, that was called the marks, the marks of a cult, full version, and of course they ignored completely the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the uh, parents of all these cults, the Jesuits, and uh, their involvement in the creation of all these cults, and that came out of the United States. Um, and the thing that they, the argument, of course, is still that they ignore is that our group is right, their group is wrong. It's still about the group, the group, the group. It is not strictly about uh, the solar scripture and, and Christ. Jesus Christ and we follow Christ. And regardless if there's a group or not, there is the dilemma I see. And that is, uh, you know, men are still putting their faith in the group regardless. So anyway, so we see that uh, the book, uh, as far as the truth of the Mormon church is, it is a cult based on a bunch of lies. It's very destructive to people's lives. Not only eternally, but also personally in lives. If you don't quite fit in to the group, you will be um, just like everything else in life, it seems. Ostracized, rushed to the side, and um, you end up being called stuff like bipolar. Not to say that it might not have some legitimacy, but the truth of the matter is, when we look at the society that we live in, without some kind of working relationship with Jesus Christ, a real one, I mean a personal one, 
let's face it, we live in a society that is bipolar. <laughs> That's insane. Uh, and so many people manifest the, or demonstrate the reality of what their environment is by being that. Same thing. So, anyways. I don't know. I might be coming on early. Later, i got to give him a call and see. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.